What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the Complete Center's Guide. I am your host, Tyler Fowler, and tonight we have a three-on-three, that's right, three-on-three debate. Does regeneration or does faith precede regeneration? It's a question that has been on the minds and it has been debated for a long time, for a long time, maybe even before Jesus came on the scene. But tonight we have six people, six people, two moderators, and we're going to be going head-on-head debate. So without any, uh, since I am going to be participating in this debate, I don't want to take up all this time talking, so I'm going to go ahead, give it over to the moderators, Josh Davidson, Cole Perkins. Guys, take it away. All right. Uh, The wait is finally over. Uh, Tonight, we're going to finally put an end to the debate that has raged on for centuries. Uh, The future fate of Calvinism and Arminianism will be decided over the next two hours. But if somehow that does not happen, I think we'll at least have brought two sides of a topic to the table and have had a respectful discussion uh, that can help us all broaden our understanding and fuel our desire to dig deeper into God's word. My name is Cole. I'm the host of YouTube channel Practical Faith, and I am honored to be co-moderating in tonight's debate. Uh, As Tyler mentioned, the topic of tonight's debate is does faith precede regeneration? And I would like to expand on that a little bit, but I don't want to misrepresent anybody's position. So I'll just let the debate participants define the terms. And now I'll go ahead and turn it over to Joshua Davidson, who is my co-moderator, to introduce the debate participants. Hello, everybody. I am uh, happy to be here, and I'm glad that this is all finally lining itself up. Uh, So beginning with the non-Calvinist side in the affirmative, uh, we have David Palman. How are you doing, David? Doing well. Thank you for having me on. David is a member of the Society of Evangelical Armenians. He writes for Free Thinking Ministries and runs an online apologetics ministry, Faith Because of Reason. Uh, He also co-hosts a proselytize or apostatize a Christian worldview podcast, and he is a student of ministry and apologetics at Trinity Theological Seminary. Welcome, David. Um, And next... We have Dan Chapa. How you doing, Dan? Hello. Uh, thanks for having me. Right on. Uh, Dan has been following Christ and studying the Bible since he was a child. Dan is a Southern Baptist and member also of the Society of Evangelical Arminians. Uh, he has a blog at danchapa.blogpost.com and runs a YouTube channel called Disconcurring Theamigos. Oh, Theo Amigos. That's very interesting. Uh, and they dive deep into scripture on issues related to Calvinism and Arminianism, etc. Uh, he also has been on a Sunday has been a Sunday school teacher for many years, and uh, we are really glad to have your participation. It's good to have you, Dan. Uh, up next, we have uh, Dane Von Ace. Is that correct? You nailed it. Right on, bud. Is uh, so this this Dane is a husband, a father of two daughters, 23 months and five months. That is remarkable. Bless you. And pastor of Sango United Methodist Church. Did I get that right? Sango. Sango. Right on. Uh, He has a master's of divinity at Vanderbilt uh, Divinity School and a BA in religious studies from University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Uh, He's currently a provisional elder and will be receiving full ordination as an elder this June. Congratulations, buddy. Uh, He's most passionate about defending biblical inerrancy, the deity of Christ, and justification by faith alone. And we're glad to have you here, Dane. Thank you, Uh, sir. So for the Calvinist negative side, 
we have your regular hosts, our very own Tyler Fowler. Again, thanks for having this go on, buddy. Uh, Tyler has been a Christian for five years now and is on a continual quest to be known and to know God. Uh, Tyler is married to his lovely wife, Lacey, and has a one-year-old daughter named Kelsey. She's adorable. And he runs this very podcast you're tuned into right now, The Complete Sinner's Guide. Glad to have, have you bleh, Glad you have decided to involve me, Tyler. And our second member of the reform team is Tyler Brillhart. Tyler works at Tacoma Bible Presbyterian Church and is working on his Master's of Divinity from Western Reformed Seminary. He's happily married and expecting a set of twins this summer. Again, congratulations, buddy. That is amazing. Uh, these are his first kiddos, so let's keep him and his wife in our prayers, please. Uh, we're very excited to hear your input tonight, Ty. Um, Thank you. And last but certainly not least, we have David Lewis. How you doing? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Uh, he's the host of Apologetics in the Attic on YouTube, and David has been married for 17 years, has four adopted children. That is awesome. Oh. He's received his undergraduate degree from Geneva College and his master. Uh, his master's of church and his church history and systematic theology from Trinity School for Ministry in Ambridge, uh, Pennsylvania. He is an ordained elder in the Reformed Baptist tradition, and he will finish off our list of participants tonight. Thank you, Dave, for joining, and thank you to all our participants for their time and all of their preparation because I know you guys took this very seriously. Uh, so, uh, the timeline structure for tonight will go opening statements between the two. Dane Van Eyes will open us with a 15-minute opening statement. Tyler, will, Tyler Fowler will be following up with his opening statement for the negative side, uh, followed by two. All right, we lose him for a second. Maybe this is uh, why it's a good idea to have co-moderators. All right. <laughs> I think he said go ahead and start, but we, we lost you for just a second, Joshua. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, all right. The second, okay. David, David Palman is going to give the se second rebuttal. And then Ty Brillhart, Ty Brillhart is going to, uh, give his second rebuttal. Then we're going to have a 10 minute break, uh, and then follow it up with cross examinations. So go ahead and kick us off, Josh. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I got, sorry. I broke up. I guess I didn't, I didn't realize that I was breaking up there. Um, uh, Dane, if you're ready, you can go ahead and start with your 15 minute opener. Great. Thank you all. I appreciate everybody being here for this important debate topic. And uh, it is an in-house debate. So it's like iron sharpening iron, brothers sharpening brothers. So I give God glory for this night. Before we dive into the question that is before us, whether faith precedes regeneration or vice versa, I think it'll be helpful to highlight some common ground that we share with our opponents so this will hopefully prevent us from misunderstanding each other's positions and will hopefully kind of ground us where we do have some commonality. Both Arminians and Calvinists affirm the total depravity of the human being. Man cannot in himself muster up faith. Man would not want to muster up faith in and of himself. Man cannot come to God without God first initiating the salvation process. God is the first seeker, the first mover, and the primary active agent in the salvation of all people. Indeed, God must grant repentance, as we see in 2 Timothy 2.25, and we see how God moves to open Lydia's heart in Acts 16.14 before she believes. We know that God, uh, without God's grace, no person would be saved, 
just as ridiculous as it would be to think a leopard could change his spots or an Ethiopian could change his skin color, a sinner cannot save himself. Where we would diverge from our opponents tonight is how God first moves upon the sinner. As Arminians, we affirm provenient grace. This is a particular grace of God that is given the sinner even before salvation. It is a pre-salvific grace that enables the sinner to put faith in God. This is a grace that can be resisted. And we see this type of resisting God's grace all throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament for that matter. But I thought three examples from the New Testament would be helpful to lay the groundwork. In Luke 7.30, we see that the Pharisees reject God's will for themselves and are not baptized by John. This seems to be a direct refusal and resistance to God's grace. In Acts 7.51, Stephen laments that his spiritual enemies resist the Holy Spirit. That's a direct use of the word resist. We see Jesus crying out in Matthew 23, 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I long to gather your children, but you were unwilling. And he is directly calling out the apostate leaders of the Jerusalem temple system for not allowing the children of Jerusalem to come under Jesus's tender and caring wing. So that's our common ground and also a bit of where we diverge. And that brings us to the question before us tonight. It is a question concerned with the order of salvation and the question is this, does faith come before regeneration? And along with Dan and David, I'm going to argue that faith does indeed precede or come before regeneration. I may use the term born again or new birth or new life interchangeably with regeneration. And hopefully my Calvinist brothers will, um, will agree to that interchangeability of those terms. I'm going to argue that the Bible makes the point clearly in specific passages that faith comes before regeneration. And of course, that's the key is whatever the Bible says, that's what we want to believe. The Bible is, is the grounding of our faith. So we want to believe whatever the Bible teaches. But uh, if I have enough time, I'm also going to talk about the attributes of God and how faith preceding regeneration coincides with the attributes of God. And also, I'll just talk about a little bit of, of logic um, and see if I have enough time to get there. So we're going to dive into the scriptures now, and I'm going to be quoting out of the Revised Standard Version. Uh, it's just my preferred version, and um, that's, that's, I just wanted to give you that note. In Romans 10, 9 through 10, we hear the Apostle Paul write this, If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For man believes with his heart and is so justified, and he confesses with his lips and so is saved. The belief of the man within his own heart, that is the means by which God's justifying grace becomes applied to him. On confession with the lips and true saving belief in the resurrection of Christ from the dead, he is placed in right relationship with God. One cannot experience this new life or regeneration that flows out of being in right relationship with God unless he believes first that Christ is Lord and confesses him as Lord and believes first that he has been raised from the dead truly in the heart. Does Romans 10, 9 through 10 state that belief precedes re regeneration? Well, it does not use that word, but it certainly describes the act of belief as preceding justification and salvation. A regenerated person is one who is saved. There could not be an unsaved regenerated man. A man living in new life with Christ is saved by definition. One cannot be raised to new life in Christ without also being justified. Therefore, while Romans 10, 9 through 10 does not use the word regeneration, 
it still implies that faith comes before the new birth in the order of salvation. There is a passage that I think quite explicitly states that faith comes before a man has new life. And that's in John 20, verse 31. And it says this, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This verse right here seems to me indisputable in the order that it teaches. A man believes, and after believing, he obtains life through the name of Jesus Christ. The belief comes before it precedes the new life. If we allow regeneration, the new birth, and new life in his name to be interchangeable terms, which I think they are, and I've already stated, then this verse could read, and that believing you may be regenerated. And so you notice that belief comes first, and that you may be in new life with Christ comes second. Another fascinating insight into our topic tonight is John chapter 12, verse 36. And the apostle writes, but he's quoting Jesus, and he says, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. Notice once again, you have that same order, believe so that you may become sons of the light. Being a son of the light, I believe, is a, again, another way of talking about the new life that we have in Christ, being in right relationship with Christ, being justified and saved, being born again. And so we notice the light is with them. Jesus says, believe in it. And if you believe in it, then you may become sons of the light. Again, I think we could take sons of the light out there and just replace it with the word regenerated. And it would say, believe in the light that you may become regenerated. One more citation from John's gospel that's important is chapter one, verse 12, in which John writes, but to all who received him, meaning Jesus Christ, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. This verse is explicit once again in the order of faith coming and then the new birth following. Those who believe are then subsequently given power to become children of God, aka born again, aka regenerated. The belief comes first, the right to be a child of God comes second. Now, my opponents may continue to quote verse 13 of that same chapter and interpret it as evidence for their position. And if they choose to do so, that's wonderful because I know David Palman will rebut it and hit that out of the park, but that's not my job to do. There is also just this sweeping motif in scripture that one believes and then is saved. One believes and then is justified. One believes and then is born again. Acts 16, 31, such a famous and powerful verse. So simple. The gospel is really quite simple, isn't it? And that's beautiful. Believe and be saved. Believe and be saved. Luke 8, 12 says this uh, as well, but in a negative sense. This is in the parable of the sower. And it's talking about seeds that land on the path. And Jesus says they land there that they may not believe and be saved. So would the salvation have come first or second before or after the belief? It comes after. Philippians 3.9, this is powerful, and really listen to this word for word. Philippians 3.9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, based on law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that, and underline this word, that depends on faith. This displays that the new birth, the righteousness of Christ, the new nature, the new life in Christ, however you want to phrase that, regeneration, it depends on faith. The one which comes first is the one that is depended on. Faith, therefore, comes first. Regeneration wouldn't have to depend on faith if faith came second. 
Hopefully I made that clear because I think that that word depends is absolutely vital to this discussion. The new life, the new righteousness we find in Christ, it depends on faith. The one which comes first is the one that is depended on. Faith, therefore, comes first. There's another question I think we should ask, and it's, it's this. Do we exercise faith before or after we receive the Holy Spirit? Because a man who is regenerated, I think by definition, has the Holy Spirit within him. So if, if we receive the Holy Spirit after faith, then that would imply that regeneration comes after faith. Because the regenerate man, again, is full of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at Galatians 3.2, where Paul writes, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? How did these people, the Galatian church, receive the Spirit? Certainly it wasn't by works of the law. Hallelujah. If it was, we would all be in pretty bad predicament. But it was by hearing with faith. They do not receive the Spirit until after they have heard the word and responded in faith. The faith comes first, the reception of the Spirit comes second. This coincides really brilliantly with Acts 11, 17 through 18. Then God gave the, the same Spirit, sorry, then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard this, they were silenced and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance unto life. So the spirit is received after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. The faith and repentance precede the new life, and it precedes the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I could continue to cite some verses that display the order of salvation, that faith precedes the new birth and regeneration, but hopefully those are enough to get us going. And I do want to comment on the character of God, the attributes of God, and then make a logical statement to conclude the scriptures do teach us that God has an attribute of mercy that is, that is genuinely given to the whole creation. In Romans eleven thirty two, 32, we read that God has consigned all men to disobedience. And we know that that all means all because all sin and fall short of the glory of God. All men are sinners. There is nobody excluded from this. This is not talking about just some group within the globe. This is talking about literally all men. And right after that, it says that he may have mercy upon all. So since we know that all in the first part of that statement is literally all humanity, it makes sense that the all in the second part of the statement is all humanity. So God truly does have mercy for all. This coincides nicely with 1 Timothy 4.10, which says that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. And this coincides nicely with 1 Timothy 2.4, which says God desires all to be saved. It coincides with Psalm 145.9, the Lord is good to all and his compassion is over all that he has made. So God has this disposition of mercy for all creatures, all people, all men. But we've got to be careful here, right? Because we know that not all men are saved. And we know that not all men finally and ultimately obtain God's mercy. We know that Jesus says many are called, but few are chosen. And we know that Jesus says at the end of the ages, there will be men and women left out in the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we know that Jesus does come back with the sword of his mouth to slay his enemies. So how do we understand God's mercy being for all and yet not all receiving mercy? The only way to make sense of this is to understand that God's grace is resistible. God draws people to a faith that they can accept or they can deny. And to understand that God has made humanity in the capacity to exercise faith in response to his prevenient and resistible grace. God does truly reach out to all people with a genuine offer of salvation, a genuine offering through the gospel, 
but this grace can be resisted or it can be clung to and it can be saving. If the Calvinist position is correct and God regenerates a man to believe irresistibly, then in light of all the passages about God's good character and desire to save all people, we must wonder why he does not irresistibly and effectually call every living soul. It, it would be an interesting question to ask. Is that my minute call or was that me getting feedback? I think someone needs to mute their mic. Oh, okay. I'm going to keep going. Now, finally, I want to I want to talk about some logical uh, assertions, and and you all can tell me if you think they are logical or not. If regeneration did precede faith, that would be to argue that a person can be indwelt by the Holy Spirit before believing in Jesus. If we allow that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit happens for a regenerate man, it's logically impossible, personally, to assume that the Spirit would make his home in an unbeliever. It's logically outlandish to propose that someone still settled in their unbelief would be given that most sacred gift of God's spirit in their heart. Now, my opponents may assert that the concept of regeneration preceding faith is a logical chain of events and not a chronological one. However, this debate is about the chronological order. That's the whole nature of this debate. So I don't want to let them off the hook that easily. But, but here's one thing. Even if, if they happen almost simultaneously in the Calvinist system. One minute, Dane. Thank you. Even if they happen almost simultaneously, even, I, I would reject the logical idea that even for a nanosecond, an unbeliever could be full of the Holy Spirit and regenerated of the Holy Spirit. An unbeliever does not get to experience any of the gifts of salvation, including re regeneration. Therefore, faith must start the chain of events towards regeneration. I submit to you that the Spirit only makes his home in believers of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. So to conclude, the Bible teaches that faith comes first and, and then regeneration. The Bible teaches God truly reaches out to all humankind with mercy and grace. Therefore, his mercy and grace must be resistible because not all people are saved. And we can logically understand that the spirit does not indwell unbelievers, even if it's only for a nanosecond time. Thank you. Okay, uh, I'm just going to step in here because I can't hear Josh. Josh, I think, is having some connectivity issues. Um Tyler, you're up next, right? Tyler Fowler? Yeah. Hold on just a second, everybody. All right. Are we ready? Right. Again, apologies, gentlemen. Not trying to make this difficult at all. All right. So are we ready yeah. then? Yeah, no no worries, man. Um, okay. I'm going to go ahead and, and be timing you, and I'll just cut in on the one minute. Just, <laughs> just tell you one minute, all right? Uh, so go whenever you're ready. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Let me just say at the get-go, I love every single one of these guys participating in the debate tonight. And the times we've talked in one way or another, they've been nothing but kind and generous. And for that, I thank every one of them. For this debate, however, I'm leading off a team that holds to the simple biblical truth, not that faith precedes regeneration, but that regeneration, or being born from above or again, supernaturally precedes one placing faith in Christ. Three main points will be made to arrive at this conclusion. 1. The concept of regeneration will be defined and explained. 2. Old and New Testament teaching about mankind's heart will be examined. 3. Ultimately, why the need for the New Covenant will be understood. From these points, I believe we can accurately summarize what Old Testament Jews and early Christians taught concerning the topic we begin speaking about tonight. Does faith precede regeneration? One thing we must keep in mind through the entirety of this debate, however, post-fall, no one is innocent before God. 
If we were to stand before God without a Savior on Judgment Day, all would be cast into the lake of fire, and rightfully so, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. With this in mind, what we are referring to as regeneration takes on a variety of language in the New Testament. Jesus, for example, in John 3, refers to this divine act as a birth, specifically a birth ek, from out of the Spirit, in which mankind is passive in participation. The forms of ganao, the Greek word meaning to beget or to be born, in verses 3, 4, 5, and 7, are all passive verbs. As we will see a bit later, Jesus is actually alluding to a passage in Ezekiel 36, where Yahweh declares that it is he who will actively purify his people with clean water, give his people a new heart, and put his spirit within them, so that... Asab being the Hebrew word used there, his people will walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. Look at the language Jesus uses in verses 5 through 8 of John chapter 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a person is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must all be born from above. The wind blows wherever it will, and you hear the sound it makes, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. For now, we can say that regeneration is an act of God necessary for salvation, sovereignly and efficaciously worked in individuals by the Holy Spirit, an act which transforms someone into a new creation, that which was lost and dead in sin has now been found and given new life in Christ by God, as we will see next. The Apostle Paul begins Ephesians 2 like this, And although you were dead in your offenses and sins, in which you formerly lived according to this world's present path, according to the ruler of the domain of the air, the ruler of the spirit that is now working in, in Argantus there, the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us also formerly lived out our lives in the cravings of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest." But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in offenses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved, and he raised us up together with him and seated us together with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is not from works, not just works of the law, but any works, so that no one can boast. For we are his creative work, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand, so that, Hannah, we should walk in them. But God, we who were dead in sin, God made alive in Christ so that. The Greek word used for so that or in order that here is Hena. This is a biblical cause and effect language in this context. We were made alive in Christ, purpose, so that we would walk, peripatesomen, in good works God predestined beforehand, effect. Regeneration can now fully be defined as Louis Burkhoff does in his systematic theology as that monergistic act of God by which the principle of the new life is implanted in man, the governing disposition of the soul is made holy, and the first holy exercise of this new disposition is secured. 
Now that we have our foundation as to what exactly regeneration is, let us now turn to see what the biblical authors have to say about man's heart, the very chamber of man's emotions, desires, and will, as, as well as why the new covenant is needed in more detail. From the very beginning, Genesis records the condition of the human heart in chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. But the Lord saw that the wickedness of mankind had become great on the earth. Every inclination of the thoughts of their minds was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made humankind on the earth, and he was highly offended. So wicked are human beings, God sent a flood to destroy the human race only to save eight people. The writer of Genesis then in chapter 8 reassures its readers that God will never flood the earth again because of us, even though, quote, the inclination of our heart is only evil all the time. From that point on, all the way up to Jeremiah's time, the heart of the majority of the sons of ethnic Israel, keep in mind, this is a people that seen God face to face, a people who received the law, the prophets, the Psalms, the temple, the sacrifices, a people that had all the evidence anyone could ask for. The majority of them remained an evil, unbelieving people, except for the remnant few God had set aside. The prophet Jeremiah begins the 17th chapter of his book telling Judah that their sin is, quote, engraved with an iron chisel on their stone-hard hearts. As a consequence of breaking God's covenant, Judah will face exile. Jeremiah adds that because of Judah's sins, God's anger is, quote, like a fire that will never be put out. Verses 9 and 10 explain the root of the sinful behavior in more detail. The human heart is more deceitful than anything else. It is incurably bad. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, probe into people's minds. I examine people's hearts. Even David and Solomon both agree, saying this about man in his heart. David, in Psalm 58, 3 says, The wicked turn aside from birth. Liars go astray as soon as they are born. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 9.3 says the hearts of all people are full of evil, and there is folly in their hearts during their lives. Then they die. We need a remedy for the human heart. We need a new way. We need the way, Jesus, so that we will not ultimately be destroyed on the day of judgment as pictured in the flood. As we will see in Ezekiel, the establishment and fulfillment of the new covenant is the remedy for the evil that lies within every human heart. God himself will intervene and initiate a salvific relationship with his people, placing within us a new heart and his Holy Spirit, ma'an and asah. Those two words are so important. So that, and for the purpose of, obeying the, com the commandments of the new covenant. I have to mention at this point to please keep in mind as we proceed, promises that are prophesied in the Old Testament concerning Israel and Judah to come are promises fulfilled in Christ to Jew and Gentile alike. For all God's promises are yes in Christ. Ezekiel then first alludes to how God will act under the new covenant in chapter 11 of his book. Notice what he writes after prophesying the destruction Israel was to receive for breaking the old covenant over and over again. Therefore say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, When I regather you from the peoples and assemble you back from the lands where you have been dispersed, I will give you back the country of Israel. When they return to it, they will remove from it all its detestable things and its abominations. I will give them one heart. I will put a new spirit within them. I will remove the hearts of stone from their bodies, and I will give them tender hearts, so that, ma'an, they may follow my statutes and observe my regulations and carry them out. Then they will be my people, and I will be their God. Verse 20 gives us the purpose or effect of the new heart and the new spirit within. Ma'an means purpose, intent, or account of as a motive or aim, or in order that God's people may walk in his statutes and carry out his regulations. With this in mind, let us examine our final passage of the Old Testament, though many more could be examined. Ezekiel 36 
Again, Ezekiel is prophesying concerning Israel and Judah's destruction. Yet Yahweh assures the prophet and the people that this is not their end. God is about to bring about a new thing in history, a new and everlasting covenant that was spoken of all those years ago. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, now listen, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake that I am about to act, O house of Israel, but for the sake of my holy reputation, which you profaned among the nations where you went. I will magnify my great name that has been profaned among the nations. And in verse 25, he says, I will sprinkle you with pure water, I will, and you will be clean from all of your impurities. I will purify you from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your body and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will take the initiative, and you will obey my statutes and carefully observe my regulations. Our Lord continues in verse 31. Then you will remember your evil behavior and your deeds that were not good. You will loathe yourselves on account of your sins and your abominable deeds. Understand that it is not for your sake that I am about to act, declares the Sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and embarrassed by your behavior, O house of Israel. A lot could be said here, but let us, clear up, let us be clear on two points. In the New Covenant, regeneration is not because of what Israel nor anyone else did or does. In fact, God specifically says that he will regenerate them, not because of what they have done, but for his purposes and because of his great name. Namely, God will fulfill the promises he made to Jesus, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, David, and even us. Two. God will take the initiative. The Hebrew word rendered by the NET as I will take the initiative is a saw. Strong's gives the word this meaning. To do, work in, or act with effect. Simply put, it means to cause. God will regenerate us. What Jesus calls in John 3 being born of the Spirit. By, be, by giving us a new spirit and a new heart. Therefore causing us, a saw, to walk in his statutes. As we turn to the New Testament, a passage about Jesus from Mark and passages from Paul will be examined to further flesh out man's nature before and after God effectively regenerates them and why this divine act is so important. In Mark chapter 7, we see some Pharisees complain to Jesus because they saw his disciples eating bread with unwashed or unclean hands. But notice Jesus' rebuke to them. He said to them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching his doctrine the commandments of men. And in verse 14, Jesus says, Listen to me, everyone, and understand, there is nothing outside of a person that can defile him by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles him. Later, his disciples question Jesus further about his statements, but, their, but his response is not what you might expect. Jesus said to them, Are you so foolish? Don't you understand that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? For it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and then goes out into the sewer. This means all foods are clean. He said, What comes out of a person defiles him. For from within, out of the human heart, come evil ideas, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, evil, deceit, debauchery, envy, slander, pride, and folly. All these evils come from within and defile a person. In other words, unclean hands aren't the problem between man and God. Man's heart is the problem. Evil actions, desires, and intents all flow forth from the heart. If evil actions flow forth naturally from a person's heart, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit, how can someone who is accustomed to doing evil do that which is good? Jeremiah thirteen twenty three. Let us be reminded of Paul's words in Romans 8, 7, and 8, that the natural man, one who hasn't been born from above, does not and cannot subject itself to God's law or please God. And in 1 Corinthians 1, 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
Also, one chapter later in verse 14, hear Paul's words. The unbeliever does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because the spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Second Corinthians 2.14, as time slips away, let us examine what I think is the key passage that Dane brought up a while ago. Romans, 8, or Romans 10, 8 through 10. The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we preach. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and thus has righteousness. And with the mouth, one confesses and thus has salvation. I honestly think this is the key to the whole debate right here. With the heart, one believes and thus has righteousness. In sum, what we have seen throughout biblical history is that all sinned and deserved hell. Yet we see hope through Scripture and the person and work of Jesus Christ. This message of hope must be believed. No one denies that. But it must be believed with the heart, as Paul tells us. The question is, do we believe so that we would be born again? I think we have to say no. We are dead in sin and by nature children of wrath before we are transformed. God initiates this transformation by giving individuals a new heart and his spirit so that a saw they will walk in the new covenant commandments. John reminds believers everywhere of these commandments in the third chapter of his first epistle. Now this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he gave us the commandment. Paul puts it this way in Titus 3, 5, and 6. God saved us, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but on the basis of his mercy. And let us remember, mercy must not be demanded, or it is not mercy. He saved us on the basis of his mercy through the washing of the new birth and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us in full measure through Jesus Christ our Savior. Thank you so much. May God bless this discussion. Time. Thank you, Tyler. That was really great. Uh, sorry for all the difficulties, everyone, but that was actually a really great uh, recovery there, and your mission was much clearer after that. Um, okay, it's uh, David Pullman's 15-minute rebuttal. Uh, <clears throat> and then we'll be uh, following David with Ty Brillhart in his 15-minute rebuttal. Uh, go ahead, start whenever you are ready, David. All right. Well, yeah. So I just want to begin by thanking everyone who set up this debate and thanking my opponents for taking the stand against me and my compatriots to defend uh, a difficult doctrine. And I make no apologies for identifying it as uh, difficult to defend from the start because it just is. And as I'll endeavor to make clear in this rebuttal, the exegetical arguments in favor of regeneration preceding faith are just rather thin. There is, in my opinion, only one biblical text that even could be teaching this, and it simply doesn't have to be. The other arguments involved, uh, they just involve reading things into the text that aren't there. Now, uh, my opponents clearly believe in unconditional election, and this is, after all, an essential feature of Calvinism. Uh, but uh, to keep this debate on topic, rather than kind of addressing proof text for unconditional election, let me point out that one actually can affirm that faith precedes regeneration and affirm unconditional election. Uh, and so I'm pointing this out because uh, it's not that like you, you need to appeal to these texts about the, the deadness to derive the doctrine. So you can just jettison that idea. Uh, they could hold that people are unable to believe, uh, but that 
God must effectually draw only his elect. And none of that is going to require that regeneration precedes faith. Uh, for example, my friend Robert Wiesner, who's a Calvinist Greek scholar, he strongly holds to an effectual call, but he just as strongly denies that regeneration precedes faith. So this can be done. There's absolutely no reason why a Calvinist must affirm this, since none of the points of Calvinism actually require regeneration to precede faith. So if that's a stumbling block for anyone that, oh, well, I believe in unconditional election, that's okay. You can believe that and still reject, you know, the, the whole faith proceeding or rather the regeneration proceeding faith model. Uh, so Ephesians 2, of course, came up. Uh, and yes, uh, we're all going to agree that we're dead in sins. Uh, the issue is that Paul never says that this deadness entails inability to believe. And as Arminians, of course, we do believe in the inability to believe until God enables through prevenient grace, but not on the basis of texts like Ephesians 2, because Paul simply doesn't make that connection. Uh, and so obviously the spiritually dead can still do many things. So why should that preclude them from being able to believe, right? We know that salvation is it's not on the basis of um, works, right? Paul clearly says that in Ephesians 2, but uh, crucially, Arminians don't believe that faith is a work. So pointing out that, um, yeah, he saved us because of his mercy, and it's not because of works that we did. Well, as Arminians, we're going to agree with that. But crucially, faith is not a work. And it's just not a sustainable argument from scripture that faith is a work. Faith is always um, placed against works. They're, they're um, like viewed as opposites in scripture. A lot of the opening statement really depended on uh, Ezekiel and the, um, the heart of uh, stone being exchanged for the heart of flesh. It's my opinion that there's not really any reason to think that the giving of the heart of flesh describes regeneration. Uh, there's no, you know, no New Testament text makes that connection as far as I'm aware. And even if it did, the verse simply doesn't say whether this happens before or after faith. So uh, even if it is about regeneration, it doesn't establish that it precedes faith. Uh, and moreover, if the Calvinist wants to use this verse or, or rather this sort of language to prove that regeneration precedes faith, then he can't use a passage like Acts 6. 1914, where we read that God opened Lydia's heart. If one needs a new heart to believe, then we may well ask which heart God opened, the heart of flesh or the heart of stone? If the heart of stone, why did he do that if Lydia needed a new heart? If the heart of flesh, why wasn't she already able to believe? Uh, there's just, there's, there's not an argument there. But even if, um, you know, we grant that there is, uh, I think this is about a covenant, a coming covenant, that, that's certainly in Ezekiel, uh, and it's best fulfilled in the New Testament through uh, the blood of Christ. Uh, but we know that a person participates in the new covenant through faith in Christ's blood. Romans 3.25 explicitly says that. Uh, and so when we, you know, come to texts like Ezekiel 36, uh, it's describing those who will come to participate in the new covenant, which we know is by faith. Uh, and so it's then that God is going to cleanse those who participate in the new covenant. So yeah, even though we don't have faith explicitly stated in Ezekiel, once you realize that in order to participate in the, the, the coming covenant, that you only participate in it through faith, then it's very evident that um, the, the receiving the heart of flesh, that that depends depends on on faith. Uh, John 1.13, this one actually wasn't raised by my opponents, but I'm going to address it anyway. Uh, the verse says that people are born again by God's will and not man's will. And at a glance, that, that could appear to support the idea that man's will plays no determining role in his own salvation. Uh, but verse 13 cannot be divorced from first tw verse 12, which says that as many as receive Christ, are, those are the ones who are given the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. 
So verse 12 says that becoming a child of God does depend on man's will or faith, while verse 13 seems to say that being born again does not depend on man's will. And so that kind of looks like a flat contradiction. However, a closer examination of the verse is actually going to reveal a solution. Verse 12 is speaking of the power or right to become the children of God uh, being given to those who believe. But verse 13 speaks of the actual process of becoming a child of God or being born again. So verse 12 speaks of something uh, that's chronologically prior to verse 13. That is, after one believes, he's then born again by the will of God. And no Arminian argues that um, man's choice to have faith is the instrumental cause of him being born again. The new birth is an act entirely of God, which he performs. Forms. It is monergistic. We're going to affirm that. Uh, but it's done in response to man's faith. So faith functions as a condition for regeneration, but not the cause of it. Uh, faith alone does nothing. God has to respond to that faith. And uh, so I think once we understand that, it, it really shows that John 1.13 isn't going to pose any problem to the way that we're interpreting John 1.12. Uh, we just have to understand that distinction. Uh, and, you know, we could point out also that if the Calvinist who wants to take that reading of John 1.13 is correct, that that's, you know, just a reference to any and all human volition, then there's a bit of an odd redundancy here. Like referencing both the will of the flesh and the will of man makes the verse super redundant because one will would be subsumed within the other, right? If uh, will of man includes all human volition, that's got to include will of the flesh as well. So it wouldn't make any sense to mention both if either of them were, if either of the references to the will of the flesh or the will of man was intended to refer to all acts of human volition. It would just be a weird redundancy that would make no sense. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I think it gets ad hoc at that point. Also a verse that didn't come up, uh, surprisingly, but would be John 6, 44, right? Uh, that no one can come to Christ in faith unless the father who, uh, unless the father draws them. Uh, and I actually gonna applaud my opponents for not um, using this text because I think it's a really bad one to use in support of regeneration preceding faith. Uh, and the answer is because just from the text, you can't make that connection. Uh, the father is identified as the agent of the drawing, but in the same chapter, verse 63, it says that it's the spirit who gives life. So John 6, 44 does not um, give any kind of support to the idea that regeneration precedes faith. John 3, however, this one did come up. Uh, and so, yeah, Ben Henshaw observes that Calvinists are really trying to draw too many parallels between the physical and the spiritual birth in that passage. Uh, they'll often argue that, you know, a sinner can no more decide when he will be reborn than a child can decide when he or she will be physically born. And of course, a problem with that approach is that Jesus nowhere says that we are to understand his words in this way. You know, what about labor pains? What about the passage uh, through the birth canal? What about conception? Should we also seek to draw parallels in those aspects of physical birth? And then if not, why not? How do we know which parallels should be drawn and which one should not? The best approach is to let Jesus instruct us, and Christ's emphasis in the, these passages is the need for new life. It does not deal with the issue of how that life is attained until the later chapter. And uh, this reference to seeing the kingdom of God does not necessarily mean uh, seeing the need for redemption or something like that. One does not necessarily need to fully comprehend the nature of God's kingdom in order to recognize one's need for a redeemer. Uh, this is just a false correlation. Uh, it just kind of seems like the text is using see the kingdom and enter the kingdom as metaphors, both for a full experience 
uh, and that would be borne out by other texts in scripture. So basically, it's just it's saying that um, in order to be a part of the kingdom, you have to believe, but uh, it, it doesn't uh, in any way support the idea that a person has to be born again in order to believe. That's just reading more into it than is there. Uh, I'm surprised that 1 John 5, 1 did not come up. This is, uh, in my opinion, the only text that the Calvinist principally could appeal to, but uh, I'll give, uh, I'll address it nonetheless. The text uh, says that the person who um, believes that Jesus is the son of God has been born, um, has been born, uh, I think of God, it says. And uh, as Brian Abasciano observes that the present participle is a substantive participle and that functions as a noun and the element of time tends to be diminished in substantive participles and can be lost altogether. Uh, so basic grammatical considerations still render the grammatical argument invalid. If Greek verbs indicate time at all, indicative verbs indicate time relative to the author's speaker's time of writing, uh, not the time that is relative to the other elements of the sentence. Moreover, we can demonstrate both the falsity of the view that the tenses of the verbs in 1 John 5, 1 necessarily indicate that regeneration precedes faith and the fact that present, uh, that present participles can be at least logically antecedent to their main verbs by looking just nine verses later in 1 John 5, 10, where the same basic combination of tenses is used. Whoever does not believe God, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed. So, you know, here we uh, hear the negated present substantive all participle, whoever does not believe logically precedes the perfect indicative has made God a liar. In time, they're probably roughly happening about the same time, but uh, it is clear that the one makes God a liar by not believing. The disbelief begins the action of making God out to be a liar and uh, remains concurrent with it throughout its occurrence. The disbeliever makes God a liar as a result of not believing him. The next clause states this logical connection explicitly because he has not believed an appeal to the grammar uh in the matter of uh this text is just not a reasonable one and again i know it didn't come up but i expect it will come up at some point so i think it's good to have basically the armenian argument on the table here so uh, in conclusion, I believe that we have seen that the biblical text cited as teaching that regeneration precedes faith neither imply nor entail that regeneration precedes faith. The whole project is motivated by reading the idea of inability into Paul's use of the language of being spiritually dead, but Paul himself simply never makes this connection. We have no grounds whatsoever for thinking that Paul meant unable to believe until made alive by the phrase dead in, dead in trespasses and sins, just none. So we can forcefully affirm the biblical truths that as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. John 1.12. We can proclaim that these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John 20.31. We may preach with full confidence that God has also granted the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. Acts 11.18. We can believe Jesus when he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, both metaphors for believing in context, you have, get this, no life in yourselves, like none, zilch. Uh, Jesus was right when he said uh, that whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, in other words, whoever believes, shall never be thirsty, but the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. Uh, John 4, 14, Jesus wasn't lying when he said that everyone who sees the son and believes in him will have eternal life. John 6, 40, 
What we have then is a clear example of a doctrine of Calvinistic theology, which although not biblical, Calvinists need to defend, and therefore we find them grasping at, in my opinion, the thinnest of straws to find biblical texts to support it. But it is just not there, even on the most charitable readings of these texts. This is why it's so important to put biblical exegesis before systematic theology. Our theology must be dicta dictated by the word of God, uh, and if the word of God contradicts our theology, then I humbly submit that we ought to change our theology to fit the word and not our word, or rather not our theology, uh, or sorry, not, we shouldn't change the word to fit our theology. Thanks. Okay. Uh, well, you, you didn't use all your time, but that's all right. Um, uh, next up, we have Ty Brillhart. Uh, Ty, if you're ready, um, go ahead and unmute your mic, buddy. Um, I'm going to reset my timer and go ahead and start whenever you are ready. Sure. Yeah, I'm ready. Um, and I probably won't be using all of my time either. Um, but as David said, this is indeed a very difficult argument uh, to make, I think, on both sides. I think there, there is argumentation that can be made on both sides. Um, but again, thank you for having me here. I'm very happy to be here, and I'm glad we have this ability to have conversations like this and still remain in fellowship with one another. Now, let's just jump right in. Now, as I was listening to David, um, he seemed to be addressing a lot of things that uh, he did address some things that Tyler brought up, but a lot of the stuff that he brought up, he mentioned he was surprised that wasn't brought up. So it sounded like he was kind of trying to, to address things that he wanted us to address rather than actually sticking to the argumentation. But our opponent tonight pointed to Luke 730, uh, but the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. But we see in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we see from this passage that God is the one who blinds unbelievers. He is the one who steps in for his own purposes and for his own glory to blind those to the truth of the gospel. Matthew 23, 37 was also brought up. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you as a hen has gathered her chicks under her wing, but you would not let me. Now, I would argue that Jesus is making a very specific point here, that we are indeed responsible for our own sin and rejection of God and the gospel. Uh, he, may, he brings up the fact that you who uh, stoned the prophets and killed those who were sent to you, he's, he, he is pointing to his specific audience, which is the religious leaders, which is Israel. And as we saw just a moment ago that I brought up, it was God who blinded them to this truth. God was going to destroy Jerusalem. It was going to happen. He was going to execute judgment over them. Does God grant us the ability to believe? Yes. Is it our responsibility to believe if we or reject? Yes, we are responsible for our choices. If we're going to really pick this apart, we must also say that God can be a female character as a hen. Obviously, God has identified himself as father. So I believe Jesus is making just a very clear point about judgment here. We already see that God is the one who blinds them. As I said, he blinds the minds of the unbeliever. The Pharisees and leaders of the religious law are the ones Jesus is talking to. Um, 
it was already pointed out as well that the Bible says that God desires all to be saved and come to salvation. But of course, we all agree that that is not the case. There, there are going to be people who uh, reject the gospel and go to hell. Um, and I think this, when Jesus is referring to um, the Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that he's p- putting a picture of that, that we are responsible for our actions or lack thereof. Uh, John 1, 13 was also brought up, but we go to John 3 that was also brought up in in David's rebuttal. How can a man be born when he is old is what uh, Nicodemus is saying. And Jesus is saying, just like your first first birth, you do nothing, you contribute nothing. Just like our own spiritual birth, we contribute nothing in that way either. And we can know this because Jesus focuses on this one aspect of birth. Yes, there are other aspects of physical birth, like the birth pains and all that, as David pointed out. But Jesus was not addressing those. He was simply addressing this inability in, of, in and of ourselves to be able to contribute to this spiritual birth, just like our first birth. John twelve thirty six. Uh, believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. Okay, that was brought up. When we had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Believe so that you may have life. Well, we must remember Ephesians 2, which was also brought up in in David's rebuttal. And it says um, this, that uh, it is by grace you have been saved through faith and not of works. Uh, it is not of yourself so that no one may boast. So, of course, we we see that and we believe that. Um, sorry. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul never said that we can't believe. That was the argument that was used, that we're dead, but Paul never said that we have the inability to to do these things. But if we're dead, the language was chosen very clearly, uh, about as clear as he could. We're dead, and this picture of being dead says that we are unable to do anything that God requires us to do. We are unable to please God in anything we do because we are dead. We must be made alive before we can even have faith. The heart of stone must be made into the heart of flesh, as we saw in Ezekiel. The word depends, uh, the word depends, the was used, that, that something depends on something else. But I would argue that if we are dead spiritually, then faith depends upon the man being made alive first. And that happens when God regenerates a person. He gives them a new heart. He regenerates. So faith does depend on regeneration. We also have Romans 10, 7. Faith comes by hearing. Well, we also know that looking back at this concept of death and blindness, that God is the one who raises up us to new life, as well as he is the one who blinds or makes unblind the person, that God is also the one who causes the blind uh, to see. So God also allows us to have the ability to hear. So we hear the word of Christ. Is God allowing us to hear it? 
and thus we can believe this term regeneration. Now, regeneration is a term that I think kind of gets uh, thrown around a little bit. Regeneration does not equal the entirety of salvation. Regeneration is part of salvation. As we know, salvation includes regeneration, but it also includes the forgiveness of sins, adoption, and the ongoing process of sanctification, as well as faith. But we have to be made alive. We have to be able to see. We have to be able to hear. And thus, we can believe. Romans 10.9 was also brought up, that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We see here, if we're using the argumentation of the opposing side, that the confession comes first. They brought up that faith has to come first in this these order that was given, but that in this sense, the confession must come first. And then we look at 1 Corinthians 12, 3, that says, no one can say that Christ is Lord, but by the Spirit. So if we want to confess and believe, we must be able to confess by the power of the Spirit, or in other words, be regenerated. Then we have the drawing of the believer. David also brought this one up in John 6, 40, and he says it's not a very good argument, but I would uh, disagree. Uh, so to go off of what he says, why doesn't God give this ability to believe uh, of belief to everyone? And that the whole subject is a debate for another time, of course, if we're going to be debating this irresistible grace. But I would like to address this quickly. John 640, the drawing means that all members of the Godhead play a role in the saving of his people. We see that the father draws and David brought up that the spirit plays a role in that. And then later, Christ actually says there are other flock that are not of this flock that I must go and get. So, of course, we see that the Godhead all plays a role in the saving and salvation of his people. Galatians was brought up as well. We must remember the context of these letters of Paul. Paul is writing to churches, those who already claim to be regenerate. In many of these churches, he is addressing false doctrine that is seeping in or sin that members are committing. Just because somebody claims we all know this, that they are regenerate, that they're a believer, doesn't mean. That's why the Bible says we have to examine ourselves, of course. And Paul was addressing this. And he reminds them of these truths, that eternal life comes from believing and having faith. But this is with the assumption that these people are already regenerate. Um, if we are to hold fast to this truth that it is God and God alone that saves a sinner, we cannot think that we, before we are regenerated, can have faith. That would mean that we would be able to do something that pleases God while we are still dead and focused on the things of the flesh rather than the things of God. And I just, I don't see that in scripture. I don't see how anybody can have faith and please God unless God regenerates them and makes them a new creature first. If we are not regenerate, we cannot please God. Our faith is in vain if God has not granted us this ability through regeneration. Thank you. Boy, that was even shorter. Fantastic. Well, that was a very concise rebuttal. Thank you, Ty. And um, uh, with that, we're actually uh, ready, I think, to go to our uh, short break. Uh, is that right, Tyler? Tyler? Tyler. 
Yeah, so with all the technical difficulties tonight, for those who are tuning in, thank you guys for joining us. What a what a debate so far, huh? We're getting ready to get into our cross-examination, actually. But here in just a second, you're going to hear the intro fire. So we're all going to be quiet while you hear the while you hear this rocking tune. And uh, so I can edit it out in post-production uh, since tonight's kind of been a disaster. But that's okay, because here's the thing. In my opinion, anyway... It makes it gives us patience. It makes us all just a little bit more like Christ. And so with that being said, I'm happy with it. But you guys will hear the intro fire in just a second. And then we will. Do you guys want to take a 10 minute break or do you guys want to just keep on going with the cross exam? I could use a break. Okay, let's take a 10 minute break after this then. And then we will uh, we'll get back to it. All right, so welcome back, everyone. The debaters are back. The moderators are back, I do believe. And so without further ado, we will get into the cross-exam portion of this debate. So Josh and Cole, go ahead and take it away. All right. Yeah, like you just said, this is the cross-examination round. This is my personal favorite time in any debate. Uh, And this round is going to be broken into four 10-minute segments. Uh, the non-Calvinists uh, will be questioning the Calvinists for 10 minutes. Um, our groups just so happen to align that way. Uh, as David mentioned, uh, there are some Calvinists uh, that hold to the belief that you uh, have faith first. But uh, this, is, this is just how this happened to, to come together. So the non-Calvinists here will be questioning the Calvinists for 10 minutes, and then we'll turn the tables uh, and we're going to do that twice. So four 10-minute segments, and we've asked to keep the questions and answers as brief as possible and make sure we don't really get bogged down. Um, but with that said, uh, the non-Calvinists are going to go ahead and start questioning the Calvinists. So, um, gentlemen, I don't know if you decided who's up first, but uh, you can go ahead and start. Whenever you start asking the first question, I'll go ahead and start the 10-minute timer. Can I make a suggestion real fast? Absolutely. Go ahead. So I will be Ty. Tyler Fowler can be Tyler. That way, if one question is addressed to either one of us, we don't get confused by which Tyler. And yeah, I'm on board with that. I think we're, we're addressing questions to specific people on the other side. so that Yes, that, that's why I thought I brought it up. <laughs> right. And right. if we you need pass. a little bit of help... I say you can you can recruit somebody for some help, uh, but don't tie it up too long. Right. So if you do, we'll come on and maybe it might help just to like kind of pass the question. You know, if you don't want it, just pass it on to somebody else so you two ain't talking. You know, together. If that makes sense. I think we're kicking it off with Dane on our end. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. So uh, Cole, Josh, if I'm good to go, I'll start. Yeah, go ahead and start, and I'll come on at one minute and just say one minute so you know. Perfect. So I want to address my first question to Ty, and before I ask it, I just want to say your uh, picture of you hugging Vody Bauckham is pretty cool. So uh, Thank you. If, if, uh, if your portrait there added points <coughs> to the debate, y'all would win. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you about the way that you used and interpreted 2 Corinthians 4.4, uh, and I have two questions, so I'll start with one. Do you interpret God of this world to be uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Because um, my most Bible translations I'm familiar with uh, have God of this world with a lowercase g and seem to imply that it's Satan. And that seems to be strengthened <clears throat> by the idea that the world is usually tied with flesh 
and Jesus says his kingdom is not of this world. So do you see the one in Second Corinthians 4, 4, blinding being our God and Father or, or uh, Satan? Uh, let me look here. So yeah, okay, so I, I do, I got gotcha. you. Uh, it is the lowercase God there as well. Um, but at the same time, I would refer to um, the part about the Pharisees where where God does blind them. So yes, I was mistaken there. Thank you. No problem. And I do, uh, I think all of us on the Arminian side here <clears throat> agree that God does, um, you know, blind judicially and, and harden judicially. But I just want to make sure we were all uh, on the same page there. Yes, thank you. Thank you. So a follow-up question with 2 Corinthians 4, 4 is, um, is actually, I guess, not specifically tied to this because we agree that that's speaking of Satan, but uh, talking about, um, you know, God's, God's blinding uh, in terms of concealing, uh, saving faith from somebody. Why does God have to blind an unregenerate person? They wouldn't uh, see or believe the gospel anyway. I think that they are unregenerate because they are blinded. So God blinds them for the sake of being unregenerate for his own glory and for his own purposes based on the gospel and his will. So when a person is, um, you know, born under wrath and, and born in sin, which we all agree on, um, that is the same as, as being blinded? Or is there a difference between God actually actively blinding somebody and um, just our being born, you know, as sinners? I think when if we're born as sinners, we are blinded to the truth until God regenerates us and God causes us to be saved. But I think you can see throughout uh, scripture and life, specifically in people like Pharaoh or Judas or something like that, that God will uh, blind people to different aspects of life, the gospel, whatever, to fit his will and and where he wants people to go or where he wants the world to go such as Pilate, Herod, he blinds them to the truth of Christ so that Christ could go to the cross. Right. So, but you do make a distinction between just original sin born under wrath and um, particular moments where God blinds somebody for a particular purpose like Pharaoh uh, or, or um, Judas. Yes, but that doesn't mean that they're not blind already. God just intervenes in their life for certain um, tasks or so, so to speak. Okay. Well, uh, before I take up 10 minutes with you, I'll, I'll pass it on to my partners. All right. Um, Tyler, I wanted to hit you up with a question about um, Lydia. Do you think that, um, wh which heart did God open? Did God open the heart of flesh or did he open in the heart of stone? Well, I mean, <clears throat> I don't remember bringing up Lydia that was Dane. So what to just ask, what does that have to do with my opening statement or what Ty said in his rebuttal? Well, because my argument's not X from from Lydia, <clears throat> Lydia or or Acts sixteen at all. I, I get that, but um, you you had a big emphasis in your argument was on uh, like basically the big issue was about the heart, right? And so, sure. the very clear description we have of this as it pertains to salvation is found here in Acts 16 and it says that God had opened Lydia's heart. Now I know you weren't using that as a text for um, this regeneration uh, or faith uh, thing, but I am curious since uh, it is key for your argument that God must give the person the heart of flesh in order for them to believe, then which heart is it that God is opening? I'm going to just go ahead and pass that on to uh, Dave. Oh, thanks a lot, man. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no problem, bud. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, my response to that, David, is I don't, um, I don't, I, I don't understand how you're applying Ezekiel 36 to Lydia because I think in your position, um, you would have to make a decision: does she have a heart of stone or a heart of flesh? When the gospels preached to her by Paul. So, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, what was so there's, I understand what you're asking us, but like, I think both of us would have to answer that question. I think neither of our positions would necessitate that we have to take it to that level. It's like, is she regenerated? And then when the whole, when her heart is opened by God, does that give her the heart of flesh? Right. Or does she have a heart of stone? She doesn't have two hearts. I mean, I I would never make that argument, is what I'm saying. So, from the Arminian position, it's pretty easy. We believe in prevening in grace, right? So, let's use this heart of stone, heart of flesh uh, language here, right? A person has a heart of stone, right? That's that's how the person is born. God opens that heart to the gospel, right? God gives them prevenient grace, and then the person can believe, and then God takes the heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. Makes sense in my position. I'm not seeing how it makes sense in the Calvinist position because you say God has to take out the stony heart before the person is able to believe. So if God is giving them a heart of flesh, like they got to have that in order to believe, shouldn't they already be able to believe? Like, why is it that God has to open it? Well, first of all, David, I want to point out that when you said Calvinists say that you quoted Ezekiel 36 exactly. You said God has to take out the heart of stone to give him a heart of flesh. Just want to point that out. That's not a Calvinist position. That's what Ezekiel 36 actually says. So, and Ezekiel 36 says nothing about faith. It doesn't, Ezekiel 36 doesn't say what you just said. Ezekiel 36 doesn't say when you have faith, God takes out your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. It just says God for his own glory will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I mean, that's what it says. Now, I agree, applying Ezekiel 36 to the conversion of an individual as they hear the gospel, I agree. Like, that's what we're debating. Like, what's the nature, what's the relationship, right, between God's promise in Ezekiel 36 of the new covenant and then someone like a Lydia hearing the gospel preached by Paul. Like, I, I hear you, David. Like, I understand, like, that's a right. I, I, I see the point you're getting at. But I, I don't, I think that, Ezekiel 36 for us is a strong regeneration precedes faith passage. And I can see why you guys have to try to push back on it and use connect Lydia to Ezekiel 36. I'm still not getting the, I I still don't, I don't, I still don't get the connection, but it's not a problem. Um, For for clarity, I believe what, what, what uh, Paulman is asking is uh, whether the, the opening of the heart is something that's performed as regeneration or if that is something that happens to the regenerated heart or happens before the regenerated heart. Well, I'm asking which heart it happens to um, because, uh, you know, he says, I mean, by the way, I agree. I quoted Ezekiel. I'm going to say, I, I explained from my perspective, it makes sense because uh, God has to enable the heart of stone to believe and to be given the I, heart of flesh. I just don't understand where this assumed second heart is coming from. Acts 16, uh, let's see. Acts 16, 14, a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, a God-fearing woman, listened to us. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. I, I, the reason I'm so confused, David, is because it sounds like you're assuming, you're saying which heart was open. Lydia has one heart. It's the what I described in my opening statement as the center of her desires, her will. God changed her will in order to respond to what Paul was saying here. Um, to believe and have faith. I mean, it's very, 
was it the heart of flesh or the heart of stone that, that he opened? Again, David, I'm not getting where you're going with two hearts there. It, me, in his, whenever you're, yeah, go ahead, Dane. David's not suggesting she has two hearts at one time. He's asking if the one heart that she has is her heart of stone or her heart of flesh. Which one? Not not that they're two simultaneous. But so if the, so if if this is the same thing as what is being described in Ezekiel 36, God minute. is taking. God is taking out her heart of stone and giving her a heart of flesh, therefore changing her will in order that she would do the thing Ezekiel 36 says, Asah there. It's in order that she will do the things that God has commanded us to do in the New Covenant, namely repent and believe. All right, Dan, I'll let you, I'll let you ask the last question. Oh, uh, sure. I guess uh, let's let's go uh, just to to put it on the table. What's the specific definition for dead as used by Paul in um, Ephesians two specifically? Um, and that question, I guess, uh, I think, Tyler, uh, you brought it up in your opening argument. So how would you understand and define dead, dead in sins? Unable to respond. Yeah, that's time. That's, that's time. We are un- we are unable to respond to that question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you. Okay. So the, uh, the 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 roles are reversed here. It is now time to reset the timer and uh, approach the questions from the Calvinist standpoint. And um, uh, whoever is the first questioner, you may begin whenever you are ready, and we'll start the timer then. Okay. Right, I'll go ahead and. Yeah, I'll go ahead and kick this off. David, you said that faith is not a work, but in John 6, 29, Jesus clearly refers to the act of believing in him as erga, a work. How do you explain this? Well, so we always have to be sensitive to the vocabulary of any biblical author that we're talking about. So uh, it would be more accurate, I guess, to say that faith is not a meritorious work, uh, which is what Paul has in mind when he's talking about works. He always puts, um, like, for example, in Ephesians 2, he says, uh, that you've been saved by grace through faith, but not of works, right? So if Paul had regarded faith as being a work in the sense that he was talking about, then he'd be in flat contradiction with himself. He'd be saying that uh, you're saved, uh, you're saved by grace uh, through works, but also not of works. So he would contradict himself. Uh, the question there in John uh, is predicated upon the question that Jesus is being asked. So Jesus is asked, what works are we supposed to do in order to please God? And so because that's the way the question is put to Jesus, Jesus answers it by saying that, well, here's the work that, you know, the works of my father that, you know, you should do is that you believe in him. So Jesus isn't affirming that faith is a work, certainly not in the sense that Paul is talking about. Uh, He's just uh, the question, or rather his answer is just using the same vocabulary that the question was uh, put to him in. So just to be clear, it's your position that faith is not a a meritorious work, meaning that you don't believe in order to receive something. It's not something you do to earn it. Uh, You could uh, very broadly define any action as being a work if you want to, uh, but that's not what Paul is talking about. So in the broadest sense that faith is an action, yes. Is it a meritorious thing that can earn something? Absolutely not. And Paul makes that abundantly clear in Romans chapter 4. Just to me, it, that's where I get confused with your position, is because you'll say, you, you say that it's not a meritorious work. It's something that, you know, it doesn't earn anything. But in the exact same time throughout the entirety of this debate, we've been hearing you believe in order to be saved. I'm having a hard time understanding how that is not meritorious in and of itself. 
well, do you agree that we believe in order to be saved? I mean, I'm asking you the questions on this. Okay, all right. Well, Scripture is then abundantly clear that, yes, for by grace you are saved through faith. So, yes, you have to believe in order to be saved. Uh, and that, I mean, the Calvinist is going to agree with that, too. We all agree that you have to believe in order to be saved. So if you're going to say that the fact that you have to do it in order to be saved, then that somehow means you've earned it, you immediately uh, inherit that problem as well. Uh, I'm but, just going to reject it and say that a condition, you can put a condition on something without making that condition a work or meritorious or something that a person has to do to earn it. Yeah, okay. I was hoping I could chime in real quick. Uh, so just yeah. to, to say the same thing, but maybe a different way. Um, faith doesn't cause or earn salvation. In fact, if God didn't have mercy on the believer, if he didn't justify them, if he didn't forgive their sins, then they would go to hell as a believer. So the believer needs God's mercy, which is a free gift. Okay, so I just have one more question and then I'll pass it off um, to one of my uh, teammates. In 1 Corinthians one eighteen, Paul says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. How does a message that is foolishness to someone evolve to a message you literally rest your life upon without regeneration taking place first? Is that question addressed to me? Um, yeah. All right, so the question was, uh, the message of the cross is to those who are perishing is foolishness. So you're saying, how does it? All right, yeah, I mean, the, the answer, I think, is going to be prevenient grace there is, is because God is able to take people and make them able to understand it and to believe it, right? But if the person doesn't accept it, if the person rejects God's grace, then that person is still ultimately going to... Um, yeah, the God eventually will remove that grace, and then the person will be back to their, uh, you know, completely unable to respond state. Okay. All right. Okay, go I'll ahead. Go next. Uh, yeah. Um, my question is for Dane. Um, so, my question is: Can an unregenerate person please God? Uh, so no. Um, in, in in the broad sense. But a person that is being responsive uh, to God's prevenient grace by believing, uh, that that does please God. So there's, I suppose, uh, uh, one thing that, that an unregenerate person could do to please God. I, I might ask for some input from my teammates on this as well. Let, let, me, let me ask a different question here, respond, or going on with that. Um, is an unregenerate person focused on things of the flesh? Uh, yes. Okay, so if we take Romans 8, verse 8, and it says, they that are of the flesh cannot please God, what do you take of that in the sense of faith pleases God, even if you're not regenerate? <laughs> right, I, I would um, agree with, with Romans, of course. Uh, I think that provenient grace really is the linchpin in all of this, uh, that, that God has an ability to enable the unregenerate um, heart to be open to receive the gospel and and believe unto salvation okay thank you could i uh could i chime in a little bit on that question no you cannot well how much i control i control the time Paulman. <laughs> how much time, how much time we got how much time we got left uh you have roughly four minutes four minutes okay i have prevenient grace questions um so uh dan i'll 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 ask you this one um, so do all seven is God <laughs> applying provenient grace to all seven billion people on planet Earth right now? Yeah, and so, well, mm, good question. 
<laughs> so if somebody is completely hardened uh, judicially, so let's say, for example, he's applied for eating gates to him for a while and they've resisted and resisted and resisted and they harden themselves and eventually he hardens their hearts and then at that point perhaps they no longer have prevenient grace there may be some type of point of no return so when you say all i'm, I'm quite cautious but in general um god is reaching out to everybody and with prevenient grace it starts with the law and he convicts them of their sins and makes them um realize that they're um uh, uh, sinners and need a savior. And you see that in Acts, uh, I'm sorry, in uh, John chapter 16, where it talks about the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. Okay. Um, so, and you went right where I was going to go. So, is so, th so the answer to the question is yes, and then he stops when they harden themselves? Yeah, so the, the moment that, that God decides to, it, in, in uh, Genesis uh, chapter 6, I think Tyler brought out, um, it says, my, my spirit will not strive with man forever. So there is some limit. And eventually, God does turn people over to their hard hearts and, and leave them in that condition. So there might be some type of point of no return. But everyone has had sufficient grace or some opportunity um, through, at some point in their life. It's just that if they resist it long enough, God may just decide I'm going to harden this individual. Okay. Is, is provenient grace tied specifically to the explicit preaching of the gospel? It's right. certainly, certainly not limited, but that is the, that is obviously primary, right? You know, in John chapter 12, it says, you know, if, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. So th through the gospel and through Christ's work, that is very core and central, um, but it's also through the law, and everyone has the law, whether it's written in the Bible or they have it in their conscience. And God is is convicting men of sin through the through the law, which leads them to the gospel. The, the law is the handmaiden that leads them to Christ. Okay, um, and uh, Paulman, I'm probably almost out of time, but I do want to go to the Lydia thing. So, from your position, so Lydia is getting provenient grace there, and her belief activates the opening of her heart so i'm kind of actually glad you brought up the lydia with the two hearts thing so what's your position on that like so what's happening in lydia's conversion there as it relates to provenient grace yeah so lydia is totally depraved right she's got the heart of stone god opening that heart we would take that to be god enabling her to believe so god takes the initiative she does believe and oh, so then minute. god then god takes the heart of stone and gives her the heart of flesh uh then regeneration happens after she believes that's how the arminian uh would consistently read that text okay and one minute you said cole okay so dane you, you might have one this might not be fair but in in second corinthians 4 4 um answer the same question you asked us in in your system with provenient grace what purpose does god have to blind the minds of unbelievers in your system so like does that mean that satan's counteracting provenient grace like there's a battle between god trying to give provenient grace and, and satan's like trying to counteract it like what, what that's like what's your understanding of well i i think um dan brought something up that would help answer this question that there are some people that god has reached out to uh multiple times with provenient grace and they have resisted and rejected and and god eventually just says you know uh, i'm going to uh, blind and harden this person as a judicial judgment upon their uh, not receiving the gospel after you know maybe they've heard it a hundred times or something um as to satan um you know it's always in vain because you know god is of course all powerful and in control of all things but uh yes yeah, satan does try to thwart the um will of god 
uh, and he does confuse and manipulate unbelievers. But uh, we, we know that if God wanted to, um, uh, you know, get Satan out of the way, he, he could do that quite easily. Um, and I'm so trying. I'm going to have to. Yeah, I'll have to step in there. Uh, I gave you about an extra 20 seconds or so. Um, if you're wrapping up answering a question, I'll, I'll just let you have a couple seconds extra since we're not doing live on the radio. Thank you. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we're going to kick it back and uh, I'm going to reset the timer and uh, I'll start it whenever you guys uh, start your questions. We'll have Dan start it off this time. Okay. I'll kick it off. Um, are we ready to go? Okay. Um, so I guess my question would be directed towards uh, Ty. And we talked, you talked a little bit about the Matthew 23 passage, and there's all other passages where Christ is crying over Jerusalem. And obviously the, the scriptures are just laden with these divine exhortations and warnings and invitations and those sorts of things to sinners. Now, let me ask this question. Um, does God give all these excitations, warnings, crying over sinners, knowing that they cannot respond because they're not regenerate? Well, uh, we can respond, but because uh, that's, we are responsible for our response. We, we, we do have the ability to respond to the gospel. It's just, if you're not regenerate, you can't choose God in that way. So, but we're still responsible for rejecting Christ. We don't. How, we, how is that not a direct contradiction that they can and cannot respond at the same time and in the same way? Because we're responsible for our own sins, but God is responsible for our salvation. So we are still responsible for rejecting the gospel because of our own hardness of heart and our own sin. I, I think Dan's question is about um, ability, not responsibility. Yeah, so I can. If I heard the gospel, I can say, no, I, I have that. If God does not put in me the, the, the saving power, so to speak. Can an unregenerate man say yes to the gospel? I think we're leaving out something very important here. Paul is super clear. I, like I stressed it multiple times in my opening statement and my questions. The gospel is foolishness to the unregenerate man. So what the unregenerate unregenerate man does with the gospel is rejected we're debating not whether man can or cannot what we're debating is what happens or i'm sorry what we're debating is what we do not what we can or cannot do i can i can do all kinds of things but what i will do is what i will be judged for in the end okay let me take a, a different approach so it's uh tyler fowler um yeah why doesn't God regenerate more people than he does? That's a very good question. If I was God, I'd answer it. But I have no idea I, why God takes the—and again, I said it uh, earlier in the chat whenever we first was preparing this thing. That might be the question I ask God whenever I get up there. What God, why did you save me? Because there's nothing good. Whenever I look back at my life, Dan, and, and see the, all of the things that I have done, things that I'm ashamed to even say, right— God shouldn't save me. Why he did is beyond my, it, it's beyond everything I can comprehend because well, he shouldn't have. I want to jump in there too. Yeah, God, sorry. I don't mean to run out the clock, but yeah, go ahead. Ty. No, so 
God, why didn't God save more people? Well, for his own purposes, if God saved Judas, if God saved Pontius Pilate, if God saved Herod before their purposes was filled in accordance with God's will, then Jesus would have never gone to the cross or whatever it might be. So God has his will that we don't know. Okay, but I guess, in ter- let me put it this way. If he regenerated them, then they could believe the gospel. Now, I understand maybe some historical people in certain circumstances, like he's got to execute things in history, but is that the, the total reason every single person that's going to hell was because, um, you know, they were- People, they, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it seems to me that what we're, we're, what we're saying is God does and doesn't want to save them at the same time. No, he just has his purpose for them. Proverbs 16, 4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So the wicked have a purpose and it's in accordance with God's will, but it's not to be saved. Can I ask? Okay, so so God doesn't want to save them? God has a will for them. And if if God's will is not for them to be saved, then they're not going to be saved, but they're still going to accomplish a purpose according, according to God's will for the world. Okay, so let's follow that. So let's take, for example, uh, somebody that grew up in a church home, they heard the gospel over and over and over again, um, but they're not elect, and they're unregenerate, and they can't respond, and they, they will always reject. And now, the fact that they heard the gospel over and over again, um, and this question is for Ty, just following up, um, won't that just increase their punishment in the end because they rejected over and over and over again and isn't god's purpose in their case by giving them the gospel just to turn up the flames of hell well but they also don't want to respond to the gospel like tyler said earlier and dan you just said it too you just said they will never respond that was your exact words they will always reject what's god's purpose though is his purpose in giving them the gospel just to punish them more severely in the afterlife. But the answer that you're looking for, it seems, is God sends them to hell and punishes them because they are willfully rejecting the gospel. Uh, understand that you hold to that uh, that view. Um, although Do you not? We, we, <laughs> Sorry. But, but, but what I'm asking more is about God's intention. Why does God continually give them the gospel again and again? Is, is his purpose in that? the end result, which is to turn up the flames of hell. It might be. I can't speak for God in that way. God does things that we don't know about that we can't speak in that way. But of course, we see in scripture that some people are destined for the day of trouble. Okay. I'll um, uh, let my my Arminian brothers uh, go. I've I've hogged the mic. I'll try to be quick. Um, Question for uh, D. Lewis. so we clearly have a lot of texts, right, where uh, we see that it's by believing that you get eternal life. Uh, do you see there, like, like, do you see there as being two types of life? Is there like a regenerating life, and then you believe, and you get eternal life? You see two types of life. No, I mean, are you talking about like John twenty, that like twenty thirty one, or yeah. really just tons of texts that say it's by believing that you get? Yeah. So I think, and, and yeah, I'm glad you asked that because I think part of the the um, uh, the weakness of the presentation was many texts were conflated. So there are certain texts that are specifically talking about regeneration, right? Just the, the impartation of new life in terms of a work done in the heart of the sinner by the Holy Spirit, whether it's provenient grace, as you guys say, or whether we would say it's a, it's a more, you know, particular grace. 
those texts, eternal life is just a stand in for salvation, in my opinion. So I don't think reading into that, like, I don't think that text is talking about regeneration. In other words, I don't think John 20, 31, that's just a general statement. If you believe you will have salvation, right? I don't think so, that's a statement like John three, for example, where Jesus is specifically talking about the new birth. So there are two types of life. There's one there. God regenerates you and makes you alive. And then there's eternal life. No, I wouldn't frame it that way. I would just say that there are texts that talk about the Does, nature of saving faith in terms of the work, which we agree with. There's there's texts that we're talking about, like Lydia. Something does, clearly is happening in Lydia's heart that's giving her new life, right? I'm not asking, does life accompany regeneration? Sure. It's the impartation of new but life. It's, yeah. it's, but it's not eternal life. No, I don't. Because it's by believing that you get eternal life. Yeah, but that's not about. But it's a, that 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 text, John thirty-one, is not about it regeneration. Do, it, it does not say if you believe you are regenerated. That's not. I, I get that. What I'm that text trying, is I, talking about. I, I'm just trying to draw it that it does. But do seem you think that? But do you think that's what we think? John twenty thirty-one says it, as Calvinists. That's no, 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 no. That's why I'm trying to see how do you. It seems like you must believe in two sorts of life. So then I want to know what do you do with John six fifty-three, where Jesus says, "Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood," right? Which he's just <laughs> talking about believing. You have no life in you. Okay, so. Eternal life in that text is by eating and drinking. It doesn't that's, say eternal life. It says no life. Position. It's like it's like nothing. No life yeah. until you eat his flesh and drink his blood. But it seems like if you say regeneration involves life, then actually there is life in you before you eat his flesh and drink his blood. You got about one minute. Mm. All right. Sorry. Uh, oh, all right. Go, go ahead. I'm, I, I'm just missing you, Dave. That's all. I'm just missing you. Right, go, go, go ahead, Dane. Let me sneak in one more question. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll stick with you, Dave, because you're, you're uh, talking right now. Um, does does a regenerate person have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Yeah. All all regenerate people. Yeah. So the Holy Spirit dwells in, in even if it's for a nanosecond, dwells in a person who doesn't have faith. I don't see how that question follows the question I just answered. Oh, because because if regeneration also is indwelled means you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and it precedes faith, then at least for a nanosecond, the spirit is indwelling an unbeliever. Do you, does that make sense? Well, the spirit creates faith in an unbeliever. I wouldn't use the term indwelling because the scripture only uses that term for someone after they've been regenerated. So the work of the spirit in an unregenerate, I wouldn't use the term indwelling. You'd have to, the, the, the Bible doesn't speak that way. Okay. So, all right. That's sorry, guys. That's time. <clears throat> if you can hear my timer there. All right. Uh, this, this is good. I wish we could just like keep going with the, the back and forth, but uh, and maybe we can at another time. But this is the last 10-minute segment here. Um, so you guys got your questions ready. Um, and whenever you ask it, I'll start the timer. Yeah, I'll go ahead and jump you in. Con- oh, sorry. Oh. Um, go ahead. You just ended with Lydia. So I was going to see if you wanted to jump in with that again the last time. No, oh, go ahead, Tyler. If you want to, or Ty, if you no, want to no, do I'm that. No, 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 oh. no. I'm, I okay. can, uh, yeah. Go ahead, Tyler. All right, uh, Dan. Uh, this question's for you. Um, 
Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 22 says, But what if God, willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his known his power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction? Who's the objects of wrath prepared for destruction in that verse? Well, there are people, I mean, I'm sure it's implicitly he's getting to Israel, who has rejected the gospel and rejected Christ's coming, and... Um, they're being judicially hardened. But the, the difference between Calvinists and Arminians on this passage is we're not saying that they're reprobate. We're saying that they're judicially hardened and that God is either choosing to have mercy or ra- uh, um, or harden them, which is in verse 18. And that's a, a sovereign choice of God to harden those individuals. But we see in, in chapter 11, and also in Isaiah 29, which uh, Paul quotes from, is that it can reverse, and it does reverse in chapter 11. The hardening reverses, and not only, uh, but in, in Isaiah 29, there's the blindness, but then the blindness reverses, and then they can see. So um, that's the difference. It's not eternal reprobation. It is judicial hardening. So just to be clear, judicial hardening, it can be reversed. Correct. That's the, that's correct, and that's exactly what Paul okay. says happens in eleven. Okay, but yet in this in this verse that I'm quoting from, it says that these people that you say are people are prepared for destruction. My question is, what does that mean to you? How can if these people are prepared for destruction, can they be people that are saved? No, and in fact, it's so bad that if the hardening doesn't reverse, okay. they're going to end up in hell. Okay, so does God know these people? on an individual basis in the sense of an int like he knows about these people. He doesn't know them in a salvific sense, but he knows about them. Yeah. Okay. When did he prepare them for destruction? So, um, I, uh, I'd have to, so if, if he's specifically referring to the Israelites, it was after they were rejecting, um, uh, the Messiah and the, but he also uses the example of Pharaoh and Pharaoh was hardened after uh, you know Moses came to him and said, "Let my people go," and said, "No, who's God? I don't know who who He is. I'm not going to do that. Make bricks without straw." After that, that's when he was hardened. Okay, my question was when were when did God prepare these people for destruction? So f- specifically for Pharaoh, it was after he rejected and make the Israelites uh, have bricks without straw. I think it's in I think it's in chapter seven when that uh, that hardening starts happening. And he's the example that Paul uses. Um, right. OK. All right. I, I was just trying to be clear on that. Uh, I'll go ahead and pass to either Ty or Dave uh, if you guys want to ask a question. So I'm going to continue on with Dan. <laughs> there um since you're on a roll but to kind of go off with that with when were these people prepared for destruction when we look at romans 9 and i'm sure you're familiar with this the jacob and esau illustration that before they had done even good or evil jacob i loved esau i hated okay so the the, the, those that's a slightly different topic that paul is dealing with there because and the reason why we can see it's different is because they hadn't done any good or evil right the difference between that and when in verse 18, it talks about mercy or hardening. Mercy presupposes sin. God only has mercy on sinners. Hardening is a judicial hardening, a punishment from previous sins like Pharaoh's in Pharaoh's case. So both mercy and hardening presuppose sin. So that's a slightly different topic. And that's why we can tell it's about 
the hardening of hearts, not reprobation, not election. The, the, the choice of Jacob and Esau was election. Now, it was an, an election um, to national service. Obviously, you know, they, they became the patriarchs and the path through which Christ came and, and blessed the world. And also it established that justification would not be based on works and it would, not, it would um, be based on God's mercy rather than um, following the law or birthright. Okay, so was Esau's heart not hardened? Um, Esau couldn't find a place of repentance, so he sought it with bitter tears. So that was, I think, in Hebrews chapter 12. There's some allusion to that. I don't think that's highly relevant to Romans 9, but it's possible that he was hardened at one point. Um, I'm, I'm going to have to say that's not what Romans 9 is about, the hardening of Esau. Well, it may not be the direct, direct um, topic, but if we're talking about love, hate, heaven, hell, election, all that, then we have to assume that there is a hardening of a heart going on if somebody's going to hell. And if we're going off of pre, um, those destined for wrath, then Esau, we could say, was destined for wrath. If, if even before the foundations, Esau hated Jacob I loved. I, I would disagree. So when you read those passages in the Old Testament context, text especially, you can see that it's a national election. You can see that in the Malachi reference, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, that's a national election. And also in the, um, in the Genesis 18 account and the other passages in Genesis, it's, it's a national election. Now, Paul's applying it to salvation and he's using it to illustrate that God is choosing to save and justify by grace rather than nationality in the works of the law. But the specific Old Testament references and the election of Jacob and Esau was national. Okay, I'll pass on. Time check, please. You got about three minutes and 45 seconds. Oh, geez. Okay, so I got two. Uh, Paul, I'm going to ask you this one because I'm going to bring it up in the closing and it wouldn't be fair if I didn't at least ask you about it. So, so how... <laughs> How is how did you find a parallel grammatically with First John five one and First John five ten when First John five ten doesn't even have the perfect tense participle of uh, you know to be born again and it doesn't even have a present tense like I, I explain that again as quickly as you can like I didn't understand the connection between First John five one and five ten how that's a grammatical parallel at all. Sure. So uh, my source here would be uh, Dr. Brian Abasquiano's uh, paper on this. And so I'm going to refer people yeah. there for the details because I'm not a so is that scholar on, by any so means. Is, it, is that on the Society Evangelical Arminians page? It, it is up okay, there. Okay, so, okay yeah, that's I'll cool. Re- yeah, I'll take a look at it because okay. I, I was intrigued by it. I've, uh, I've got it here. I can read what he said about that. No, no, that's, a, that's okay. That's okay. okay. So, okay, next question. This could be for you, but this could be for anyone. So um, I'm thinking of our friend Leighton Flowers. So, um, how would you just because I know what he's going to say how why shouldn't your guys's position be partial regeneration precedes faith because you know that's what he says about you guys right like well you guys this provenient grace thing is just a partial regeneration like you want to act like you're not being Calvinistic but in the sense you're still saying that God partially regenerates someone they're in a state where they're not born again yet but they're not dead in sin either so I get, what's your guys' response to that general idea? I'm sure you guys have heard it before. Yeah, and so that's not even a totally a straw man on 
um, Leighton's part because uh, many Arminians, Arminius himself, uh, and certainly Wesley, even a contemporary Arminian like Roger Olson, they do frequently describe prevenient grace that way. Uh, and I think that that's unfortunate. I think that's an extremely terrible way to describe it. I don't think you have like partially saved people. So um, I my, myself and really like most of the people like in the free will Baptists and uh, even Dr. Brian Abasciano, president of the society, uh, we've tried to, di- 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 to distance ourselves from that sort of terminology. Uh, and the reason why is because, again, I don't link deadness to inability. If you do, then yes, you're going to have to come up with some kind of, uh, in order to have enabling happen, then you're going to have to say some sort of regeneration happens. But just uh, we don't have the exegetical um, backing to make that connection. And so that's why I don't see, uh, that's why I don't link deadness to inability. Got about one minute. All right. Um, um, Real quick, I have a question. Um, since we only got a minute, and is it, since Ezekiel thirty six got brought up, just and this is for anybody. Do you guys not see cause and effect language in the word "asaw" in uh, Ezekiel thirty six, where God initiates this transformation by giving individuals a new heart? He gives them His Spirit, asaw, so that they will walk in the new covenant commandments. And I said, you know, in my opening statement, those commandments John lays out so clearly in John 3 to believe in his son and love. So just real quick, my question is, do you guys at least see where we're coming from with this cause and effect language that is being described in Ezekiel 36? I'll jump in and and say, uh, I think, I know I know for sure, David, because we've talked about this in the past and probably Dan as well, we agree that the um, giving of a new heart is monergistic, that God does that work, and that no, no human being can give themselves a new heart. We just believe that uh, faith is the condition that is met before God does that work that Ezekiel 36 is talking about. So faith is the condition, and then you become, through God's uh, you know, justifying grace, you're going to have all those blessings of the new heart, the sprinkling of the water, and all that. I don't know, I guess I just have the term problems with the term monergistic whenever it's dependent upon what man does. You see what I'm saying? Whenever yeah. we say it's monergistic, well, it's I, I gotta cut you guys off there. Okay. Um, yeah. unless I mean Tyler, this is your show, so I mean if you wanna <laughs> So I do wanna, have the ultimate control. Up. Hmm. No. You got this. No, we'll no, we'll keep it fair. We'll go right into the closing statements, guys. All right. So, uh, like you just said, we're going to, we're going to get jump into the closing statements. Uh, Dan looks like you're up first with the 10 minute closing statement. So are you ready to go? I, Oh, hang on. Am I muted? Oh, I am. Okay. Yes, I am ready to go. Okay. As soon as you start, I'll start your timer. Uh, do you want a warning or no? Uh, yes, please. Yeah. One minute warning would be awesome. Okay. I'll give you one minute warning. Yeah. Thank you. All right, so when the Holy Spirit convicts a spiritually dead sinner of their sins and Christ illuminates them to see the truth and they're called through the gospel to union with Christ and his church and they don't resist God's grace, but rather they're brought to saving faith, God regenerates them, giving them resurrection life in Jesus Christ and eternal life in the Son. And they legally pass from condemnation to justification, from death to life. And they're indwelt with the Holy Spirit and made a new creation in Jesus Christ for good works. Okay, so um, we, we touched on a lot of different passages. I'd like to focus on um, the Ezekiel passage in the cause and effect language here. 
So here's what's important. We agree that there's a cause and effect relationship here in that the new heart causes obedience to God's commands. But there's a distinction between obedience to God's commands and trusting in God's promises. And I think if we spend some time on Ephesians 2, we're going to see that. So I'm going to pull that up real quick. Uh, apologize. Ephesians chapter 2. So there's a couple of things I'd like to point out in Ephesians 2 in this the topic of dead in your trespasses and sins. So for starters, our position on the deadness is it is an inability to cause life in yourself. Our position has never been that we regenerate ourselves. That's absolutely the case. And it also is dead in our trespasses and sins in terms of that we're in a state of condemnation. That's what we believe that Paul is communicating at this point. Now, what our, um, Tyler and Ty uh, both have said is, well, no, the deadness and sins means that they can't um, do anything spiritually, or especially believe. But these are the walking deads. This is the Rick Grimes passage, right? Um, they're dead in trespasses and sins in which they once walked. They, they're both dead and they're walking. They're still able to do spiritual actions, including sin. And, and so they're both dead and they're walking. But here's the parts of the verse that I think backfires on the Calvinist position. Even though you are dead in your trespasses and sins, you're made alive together with Christ. Made alive together with who? With Christ. You'll see the same th same language in Colossians chapter 2, that we're made alive in Christ. We're buried with him in baptism and raised together in newness of life. And in Colossians chapter 2, it specifically talks about that this is through faith. This is Colossians 2, 12, and 13. So it specifically says that this is through faith. We are united to Christ through faith, and then together with Christ, we're made a new creation. We're recreated. We're given new resurrection life. And look at what this passage says in verse 8. For by grace you were in saved through faith, and that not, it's not your own doing, it's God, not a result of works, so that no one may uh, boast. Look at verse 10. This is important. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for faith. No, that's not what it says. We're created in Christ for works right? This recreation, it is through faith, and this creation comes about through faith, and it leads to works. So the, 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 you know, obviously it's through God's grace, we're enabled to believe, then we believe, then we are uh, regenerated and created in Christ, in union with Christ, to good work, good works. So um, let's, uh, Let's keep going. So in, we, we, in the Q&A section, this whole idea of responsibility, it seemed a plain contradiction to me that what was being said is that we can and cannot respond. An unregenerate person can and cannot respond at the same time in the same way. I can't make sense of it. It's a contradiction. Um, the, the, then also we talked about the purpose of the gospel. The gospel is God's grace. It's God's bringing salvation to people because he loves people, as we saw in many different passages that have been brought out. But what we heard was that the purpose of the gospel for the unregenerate is sometimes God's purpose for them is just to turn up the flames of hell. They would be so much better off if they never heard the gospel at all. You know, that, that doesn't make sense to me. 
Um, so 1 John 5, 1, just to see if I can try to clarify this point. For starters, I highly recommend just reading uh, Brian Abbasiano's article. It's very important. But uh, just to make the point real quickly, the, uh, it, in the passage, it talks about both regeneration and it talks about believing. But the timing of the verb for regeneration or being born again is not relative to believing. It is relative to the time frame that John wrote the epistle. Let me say that one more time. The time frame in John 5, 1 is not, the believing is not in timed in relation to the believing. The regeneration isn't in time uh, relative to the time frame of believing. It's relative to the time frame that John wrote the epistle. The second point I'd make on John 5, uh, 1 John 5, 1 is the purpose that John is doing it overall, which is a test of assurance not a conversion, but of, of assurance. And it requires that you have ongoing faith in your life. If you see you have ongoing faith in your life, then you can know that you were regenerated. If you have ongoing continual faith, and it's the, um, you'll see there's several other tests of assurance. It's whether if you have ongoing sin in your life, unrepented sin, you, you know, that's a uh, evidence that you might not be regenerated, um, you know, that sort of thing. So there's these tests of ongoing things in the gospel in, in uh, 1 John. And 1 John 5, one of them is a test of assurance, not a test of conversion. It's a test of assurance of faith. Do you have ongoing faith? If so, you've been regenerated. Um, the, another point I'd, I'd bring out is that the idea that regeneration uh, precedes faith um, it actually is not the reform view. It's a fairly modern view. Um, so I'm going to read from the Belgic Confession, Article 24. It says specifically, we believe that this true faith produces uh, in us by the hearing of God's word and by the work of the Holy Spirit. He regenerates us and makes us new creatures, causing us to live a new life and freeing us from slavery to sin. Right? By hearing God's word and by the work of the Holy Spirit, he regenerates us and makes us new creatures. Right? This, uh, we, again, we believe that this true faith produced in us by the hearing of God's word regenerates us. So the Belgic Confession specifically says that faith becomes, comes before regeneration. So that faith, uh, regeneration comes before faith is not the reformed view. Um, and it's contrary to the reformed confessions. And it came up later in, uh, in, in discussions. Um, Let's go through some, some other things. Uh, that, let's see. Um, okay, John, John 2. The, uh, I'm sorry, John chapter 3. The, the fact that we uh, are unable to give ourselves new birth. Absolutely. We 100% agree with that. We're never saying that we regenerate ourselves. That's never been our position. How about Ezekiel uh, 36? Okay, uh, so a lot could be said on Ezekiel 36, but probably the most important thing um, that was, was said on that is uh, uh, David Lewis's comment where he says, it doesn't say anything about faith. Well, how can this be used as a proof text that regeneration uh, precedes faith if it doesn't say anything about faith, right? And then also I would just uh, echo the points that uh, David Pullman made on the passage in terms of, well, in the new covenant, there's forgiveness of sins, and that has to be done because or in uh, people are only justified by faith. So if the, if the new covenant blessings that are talked about in Ezekiel 36 and in Ezekiel 11 and Jeremiah, um, if, if those new covenant blessings include 
forgiveness of sins, then it's after faith because we're only justified by faith. Then I'd also touch on um, the passages like uh, John 6, 53, um, where it says, unless you uh, eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. The same thing in uh, John uh, 20, One minute. Um, where it talks about, um, we basically believe in order to be given eternal life. And that's all throughout, scattershot throughout all of the scriptures. So, um, the, you know, we're just simply told, well, that isn't about regeneration. Well, it's not the word regeneration, but it's new life. And we can still use those scriptures to, um, to understand that we're given new life after we have faith. And those are the most explicit and direct references that we have throughout the Bible on this topic. Everything else is just kind of um, inference and that sort of thing. So these are the most direct statements and they just specifically tell us that we believe in order to be given eternal life. So, and then the last thing I'd say is that when God calls people, he calls them sincerely. He loves them. He wants to save them. We see that in John 3, 16. We see that in 1 Timothy 2, 4 and uh, 2 Peter 3, 9. He's not willing that any should perish, but people resist and reject God's grace and that, and they're responsible for their own rejection. And that's why they end up lost. All right. Thank you, Dan. Um... Gave you about an extra 10 seconds. So, uh, David Lewis, uh, I know you could, I know you could take it up. If, uh, so if you want an extra 10 seconds at the end, you can have it. All right. All right. You ready, brother? Whenever yep. you start, I'll start your time. All right, here we go. Uh, so Dan, you threw me to a, for a loop on the Belgic confession. I don't think you understand that at all. I'll just say it, it's not anyway, I, I'll have to look into that. So Ephesians two. So, so, um, you know, our opponents want to say, on the one hand, that the spiritually dead can't believe. I mean, Dane said that very clearly. We agree with the Calvinists on total depravity. But yet, they also want to say provenient grace is necessary to lift you out of the deadness. Like, I, I don't understand how they're not open to the charge of someone like a Leighton Flowers who ends up saying, well, how is this not basically the same as a Calvinist. So I, I just don't, I don't understand the consistency of that. And I, I still think that's a contradiction there. Um, so I, I want, I want everyone to hear what, what Dan did very, 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 he did a good job. Ephesians 2, 4, where it clearly says that God made you alive, right? So God is the direct object of the verb. And then Dan jumped out of Ephesians 2 into Colossians, to read human faith into the reason why God gives that new life. And I, I just want the audience to notice how he did that. He, he jumped out of Ephesians 2 where it clearly does. So the problem with their position is they clearly see that it doesn't condition that new life on faith in that text. So they have to jump to another text where, and this is where Mr. Pullman wants to make this distinction between eternal life and some other kind of life, acting like that's what we're doing. But what I see them doing is jumping out of a clear text where God is the agent giving new life monergistically. But then they want to say, well, wait, we got to go to another passage where faith is actually part of that. But Ephesians 2, 4 does not say that. Um, John 1, 12 to 13. Okay. John 1 is the prologue. Okay. Yes, those who receive, those who believe, become children of God. 
But the rest of the gospel of John is meant to answer the question, who receives, who believes? And if you read John, it's very clear. Those who are born again, those who are brought from death to life, those who are drawn, those who are the called, those who are the given by the father to the son, those who are the sheep, those who it's, it's clear the receiving and believing ones are the ones who have been given to Christ by the father from all eternity. Um, John three, I thought was completely discounted. I mean, Mr. Palman made a, why didn't Jesus talk about every analogy with birth? If that's what he was talking about, he should have talked about birth pains and women, childbirth and something. No, the point is, I don't think they refuted the point. The point is Jesus is using the analogy of birth and wind to make the point. You don't control birth or wind. The new birth is by the spirit. And then I don't think it was even addressed because David kind of mentioned, well, it does say being seeing and entering the kingdom, but he, I forget what he said, something like, well, that's not salvation. That's just the benefits after salvation. No, that's a clear, you cannot enter the kingdom of God or see the kingdom of God until God does something first, namely born again. And that's a problem for their position because they can't really fit provenient grace in there. I don't think like oh well born again means provenient grace that's why they have to jump out of that text and go to some other texts to to try to make that happen um first john 5 1 i dan i'm glad that you clarified first john 5 1 um because I, that, that simplified it for me and i'm going to read that article david because i, I want i'm interested in his his position on that um because my understanding first john 5 1 very simply there's a present tense everyone who believes who's believing right? As they're reading this, this epistle or hearing John preach this, everyone who's believing right now, something in the past has happened. You've been born again. And the parallel to me is first John 2, 29. And, and Dan was right. There's several of these. You can trace them through John. There's the present tense action fruit in the present. That's a result of the new birth. And another one is doing righteousness. So if you do righteousness, that's evidence that you've been born again. And I'm sure our opponent's position isn't that you, by doing good works, that causes you to be born again. But to be consistent, that is how you would have to read all of those texts, including 1 John um, 5.1. Um, and I'm glad David at least admitted, if there is a text that teaches our position is 1 John 5.1, and I, I completely agree with him. That is a very good text for us. Um, um, so here's my biggest problem with the provenient grace system. And I brought it up in my, um, you know, in my cross-examination a little bit, you know, as my friend Leighton Flowers would say, I mean, how is this concept not, I mean, I understand that you guys reject that language and think it's a sloppy use by, by Olson and, and company, but Leighton has a very good point. How is it that you're going to, on the one hand, agree with us Calvinists and say you believe in total depravity and you believe that people by nature, by birth, cannot repent or believe until the Holy Spirit does something, but then trigger this thing where, well, so we believe the Holy Spirit does have to do something and it doesn't result in repentance or faith, it, but it does change their nature because, see, before the Spirit does this, their nature isn't able to do this. So there is a change but that change can be undone if they're judicially hardened. I just, I just think the provenient grace thing for me is always, I, I don't see how it's pushed consistently through and I will leave it to the provisionist to demonstrate that because they demonstrate it very well, in my opinion, that provenient grace is a big problem. So check out Leighton Flowers material plug for Dr. Flowers. Amen. Okay. And if, 
and, and, and what I was getting at with the 7 billion people, they're laughing if you're here in the audio. It's, it's, it's a good time. It's a good time. So, and also the, uh, you know, the 7 billion people comment I was making. And, and you know, I, I think, you know, if you listen to that again, I, I, I think Dan struggled to, and, and I mean, I didn't get my points across. 10 minutes of cross-examination isn't enough. Um, and I'll give a plug for Dan's page with my time here. Dan's page, the Disconcurring Theo Amigos, if you want to just sit down, if you're a theology geek and you want to hear him and Turretin fan go back and forth about these, it's just great. And they only have like 90 subscribers. So I don't know why their YouTube page only has 90 subscribers. So people subscribe to their page. But, okay. but my thing is, so is God proveniently gracing everyone on planet earth right now i mean if you say yes that creates all kinds of problems for this system number one so someone who's never heard the gospels being proveniently graced well they'll say well no but notice what dan did he shifted to well well the law is a form of provenient grace well wait a minute has everybody heard a clear presentation of works of the law condemns you before a holy god well no. Okay, well, then, then we'll take it one step further. Well, everyone has the law written on their heart by nature. Okay, so that's a form of provenient grace. So everybody has provenient grace. So where's the gospel come in? You know, and that's why what you will see if you study this out, um, you know, I could plug, um, it's called the Remonstrance Podcast. It's a, some Arminian guys who are more Wesleyan. They, they have a way different view of provenient grace than I think our opponents today. They have there's a lot of debate around provenient grace. It's not a unified concept within this camp, in my opinion. I think there's a lot of things that you could you could poke holes in it with. And I think now with my with, with the rest of my time, though, I here's what I want to because, you know, I could close with my last two minutes, three minutes on like, yeah, we got them. And I don't want to do that. This is how I want to close because I want people to understand this. There are many, many, many in the visible church and online with YouTube channels that are denying classical Augustinian original sin. I'm talking, they teach human beings are born good. There is no, they'll, they'll try to couch it a little bit, but at the end of the day, no, Adam and Eve's sin did not really affect us internally. We're not totally depraved. You can just believe in the gospel without any aid of the Holy Spirit. And I want to say here today on this debate, I stand with these men that were our opponents, and I appreciate that they still hold to that position because I'm telling you it is under attack in our day. It is under attack in our day. I know I can stand with these men and proclaim the gospel together, and before we would proclaim it, we would both pray, God, send your Holy Spirit and accompany our preaching with your powerful spirit so that men are able to repent and believe. That, can, that should be a Calvinist and a classical Arminian agreement, okay? And, that, and I want to end on that. I want us to see that agreement because I, we're getting into a day and age where I'm seeing that under attack from so many quarters that, you know, and, and, and my brothers here, I know, and, and I'm, I appreciate Dane, that's how we started. And I, I want to end the same way he started on our points of agreement. We both agree that God Almighty uses us as instruments. You know, whatever his predestinating plan is and all that, I mean, I put that in mystery at the end of the day, okay? I think we all have to bow to mystery and say, God, your ways are higher than our ways, okay? But I know we all agree that we should be going forth, preaching the gospel, praying for the Holy Spirit to accompany our work, and he does his work as we proclaim 
repentance and faith is necessary for salvation, which I, as a Calvinist, will gladly say that human beings must repent and believe. The, the debate is, what, how does that come about? What's the nature of that grace, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, I think practically we should all do evangelism exactly the same, and we should all come together to do that. Thank you, and thank you, gentlemen, for this debate. Enjoyed it very much. That was fantastic. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Mr. Lewis. That was that was a fantastic ending, and thank you for the exhortation to go and evangelize what we're doing here. Um, Amen. Because, yeah, that's the last thing that this topic needs is stagnation. Um, I, I hope you guys can hear me because my connection's a little unstable right now, but uh, that was a fantastic debate, and you guys did awesome. All of you did awesome. That cross-examination was fantastic. Um, I know that, that that Cole also in the side chat was talking to me about this, and uh, this, was, this was really fun, and I hope that you guys all had as much fun as I did with this. That was really awesome. Um, I feel like that was some really solid points. Uh, I like the distinction that Dan made uh, when talking about Romans 9. Uh, this this uh, Jacob and Esau hadn't sinned yet in the, the the contingency of mercy, and I hadn't thought about that, so that was new to me also. And this is this was very informative interaction and all the preparation that you guys did for this was really obvious. Yeah, I was I want to say, man, the the whole thing it was awesome. I especially enjoyed the cross examination time. Uh, I'm glad that we settled the issue, uh, and now we're all <laughs> on the same side. So. Thank That's you. Right. <laughs> um, and if any of you, any of you guys want to come on my channel uh, anytime and discuss this and kind of go in depth a little bit uh, and do some more kind of back and forth, you're welcome to come on anytime. Um, I don't have some people uh, on because I know that some people can get a little bit contentious, but I, <laughs> I think we demonstrated tonight that you can disagree on some, some major points and uh, that's okay. And oh, yeah. at the end of the day, we're all Christian brothers, and we all uh, we all believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and uh, died on the cross for our sins, and we want that message to reach the world. So, thank you guys so much uh, for the debate. I really enjoyed it, Amen. and uh, I guess we'll go ahead and kick it back uh, to you, Tyler. Yeah, and thank. I just want to thank each and every each and every one of you guys. So much grace, so much. Just, I, I love it. I love whenever we can come together, we can differ, and yet still be godly toward each other. In, in, in grace. That's what this is all about. So my proposal is next time, gentlemen, um, I would love to have you all back on the exact same thing to discuss what David ended with. Um, the, our, our, where we come together at in this debate on total depravity, because I, I wasn't aware, honestly, I wasn't aware uh, that that was under attack, you know, even though we both agree on that. Like, so I think we do need to have an episode on that. And I would love to have each and every one of you guys come back on. Um, would you guys be cool with that or we'll set it up then awesome we'll set it up then um just for those who are still listening i just wanted to kind of give a schedule what's what's coming up on csg and then i will let uh, each of you if you got a youtube channel here's the time to promote it so if you want to do that feel free to but uh what we got coming up on csg next week uh the importance of apologetics in the church collab episode with david russell from proselytize or apostatize so that should be really really fun um, that'll be a really, really fun discussion. And then on May 21st, we've got uh, a, not not quite a debate set up like this was, but more of an informal discussion with Robert Wiesner, uh, Luke Huck, 
and Justin uh, Simpton on premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. So that's kind of what we got uh, coming up for the month of May. And then in July, I've actually got uh, a date set up. July 2nd, I will have Blake White on uh, to discuss New Covenant Theology, which is what you heard kind of in my opening statement a little bit tonight. But we're going to discuss what New Covenant Theology is, how it differs from uh, the traditional covenant uh, theology, and from dispensationalism. So that should be really, really interesting. But if you guys want to just kind of go around the uh, the roundtable, and uh, if you got a YouTube channel, like I said, feel uh, feel free to promote it, guys. Do we want to start in the same order that we opened up, so with Dane? Yeah, that's fine. Just go Dane, uh, David, uh, Pullman, and then Dan, and then Ty, and uh, Dave Lewis. You guys can jump in after that. Well, I just want to say thank you to Tyler uh, for um, having us on your channel and, and to uh, Josh and Cole for mo uh, moderating this. And uh, to Dave, Ty, and Tyler, great spirited discussion. Love you guys. And I love the unity that we were able to find in, in all of this. Um, I don't have a YouTube channel or a blog or anything, but I pastor a church, uh, Sango United Methodist. And I can assure you that I don't preach like most United Methodists. Um, uh, and, and how long, you know, how long I can, can stay, uh, you know, we have either a supernatural reform has to take place or, uh, something's got to change. But, uh, anyway, um, you can find us on Facebook, Sango United Methodist Church and, and, um, our worship services are filmed and you can find my preaching. All right. Uh, yeah, I have a YouTube channel. It's uh, called faith because of reason. I, uh, initially started out doing apologetic issues like the existence of God and uh, started a series uh, responding to Jesus mythicism. Uh, then I kind of went through a period where I was um, doing issues for like what we were discussing today, soteriology, and I uh, made uh, my case for Arminianism there. I didn't, I didn't really finish it, but anyway, I did videos related to the sorts of issues we were discussing here today. <laughs> and then uh, most, most recently I've been doing a series on, um, epistemology, uh, my own theory of knowledge, and I'll uh, planning to move on to go and critique um, other methods of apologetics, like presuppositional apologetics and such. And uh, so, yeah, you can subscribe over there at uh, Faith Because of Reason if, you're, uh, if any of that sounds interesting to you. So uh, I, I have a, a channel that I actually co-host with Turden Fan, and it's called Disconcurrent Theo Amigos. And it, we focus mostly on digging into scripture, especially unrelated to issues of Calvinism and Arminianism. And we go very slowly through scripture. You know, we'll, we'll spend you know, an hour and a half on just one passage if we need to. And uh, we just try to wrestle it to the ground. 100% um, agree with the way this is ending. And I appreciate David Lewis and his spirit in this. There's no, you know, if you look in these Facebook forums, you might think it's like good, good guys versus bad guys or we're enemies or something like that. But it's really good to, to hear that. No, that's not the case. We love each other and um, we're, we're working together for the gospel. Well, uh, again, uh, for the hopes of not being repetitive, but I, I agree with everything everybody said so far about the unity and and uh, you guys are wonderful, cherished brothers in Christ to me, and I appreciate all of this, and uh, the discussion was wonderful. It was humbling. This was my first official debate, and so it was a very humbling experience, but it was a lot of fun. Um, I do have a YouTube channel, but I'm swamped with work and seminary at the moment. I don't think I've posted anything since August of 2019 or something like that. Um, 
but it's there and it, it'll come up again. But again, just thank you for this opportunity, guys. Thank you for everybody and your um, kindness and grace that you've shown um, in everything. So thank you. My YouTube thing is called Apologetics from the Attic, and it's named after that because I'm sitting in my attic. It's the third floor of my house, and this is the only place my wife will let me have my theology books in the corner uh, over here where I'm relegated to <laughs> with all my books. Uh, but, you know, I cover things from, uh, you know, I'll go on my, I'll get on my hobby horse about, you know, defending Calvinism, but I have a lot of videos on there about defending uh, the faith, you know, liberal Christianity. Um, you know, dealing with Roman Catholicism, dealing with a lot of issues on there. Um, and yeah, I, I, I like the unity. And, you know, if I can recommend any video to anyone who just wants an introduction to, to you know, it's, it's called Catholic Evangelical and Reformed. And, and just to, to, to study theology from a historical perspective is really what helped me. Like you start with Catholic with a small c, not Roman Catholic, but, you know, our commitments to the Trinity, the deity of Christ. Uh, you know, the authority of scripture, and then move from there to the issues of the Protestant Reformation, the nature of grace, you know, justification by faith alone, and, and, and then move into these reformed issues. But many times we start with the reformed issues and work backwards, and then we never really see the unity. And finally, what I'll say, Dane, I will pray for you because I was in the Episcopal Church, and that's the seminary I went to, so I know everything you're going through with dealing with Protestant liberalism, so um, we should pray yeah, for him. Uh, the, um, you know, traditional and orthodox pastors in my denomination are about one in 500. And uh, I just give God glory and praise that uh, he's allowed me to um, stay rooted in, in the true faith and not to, uh, you know, be an apostate in a pulpit. So we truly need the gospel spread everywhere. And most importantly, in our churches, especially in America today, I, I truly believe that. So thank you gentlemen again for coming on. This has been the three versus three debate. Um, man, and, and this has just been a blast. So thank you all uh, for tuning in, listening. Thank you guys for participating. And we will see you again next time on the Complete Center's Guide. Good, have a good night. God bless and take care.